Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. We are your hosts, Viswant and Partha. On today's episode, we have an incredible interview with Super Bowl champion and multi-hyphenate James E. Hedebo about football, business, and faith. We also welcome back Coach Zach Smith to give you all the best college football and Ohio State analysis. Finally, we'll hit some news and notes to discuss some of the most hot-button issues of the week. We wanted to give a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters. Donate to the Pilot Boys podcast on Patreon if you want to support and help keep us on air. Let's go. Where the Pilot Boys at? football we got zach smith back from minister sports after ohio state's first game of the season a lot to talk about a lot to dissect excited to have you on zach let's let's get it hey man it's always it's always nice talking big 10 football right like buckeye football what's what's better than that there's literally nothing (laughs) no doubt (laughs) so let's get right into it First game of the season, Nebraska. Tell us your your unfiltered thoughts as you were watching the game. Um, I, th- I thought it was a great first game. I mean, with COVID, with no spring ball, crazy off season, canceled the season, brought it back. I think I feel like we brought it back to life four times, and it just it was a good first game. I mean, I think we learned a lot, right, about the team, kind of the coaches' thoughts, and I always look at it from you know being a former coach, like. I can see what the coaches think based on how they play players, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you look at the receiver room. Like obviously, it was clear Garrett Wilson was in the slot. Jamison Williams was the other starter in in the out of the receiver room. Those were the top three. What I wasn't anticipating was how little the rest of the group would play. Yeah, because those three played ninety percent of the game, and wow. in in a game like this, you expect to see more snaps from the, I don't know, backups or younger guys. Like, obviously, everyone saw the Jackson Smith and Jigba touchdown, which was, I mean, absurd. I've never, yeah. I don't know, it's probably the most athletic play I've ever I mean, seen. It's unbelievable. And you have oh, to see it in slow motion to pre- fully appreciate it. Right. And, like, the, the, the this man was entirely out of bounds. Like, his whole body was out of bounds. But he, like, snuck his big toe in real quick, touched it. It was like, <laughs> That was that? one of those moments that I, I saw him do that, and I was just like, this guy has just proven he can go pro. That yeah. that kind of body control is very rare. Very rare. And so we, we got to see that, how Brian Hartline is going to employ his group, and it's kind of what what we talked about last week, where it's it's really a, a, two, a two-man show with Jamison Williams being that third wheel. And then outside of that, there's not a lot of guys that are going to play a ton. I think those freshmen have to kind of grow into their role. But, I mean, I don't know how we even talk about the game without talking about Justin Fields, just the most, I mean, most ridiculous performance in an opening game I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, 21, whatever he was, 20 of 21 with his one incompletion being a 50-50 drop. It was just, he was so polished, so poised. He was decisive. His accuracy and ball placement was ridiculous. The only thing that he needs to improve was time in the pocket. I mean, yeah. it took him 2.75 seconds on average to throw a pass, right? Wow. And 
it obviously didn't hurt him in this game. I mean, he he was perfectly fine, but that's fourth worst in the country on Saturday. So that's just it's too slow. He holds onto the ball a little too long. The O line played really average. I don't care what anyone else says. They played average. I mean, they played, and I'm an O line. I don't want to say hater, but an O-line evaluator that never coached O-line. Is is that the trigger for why? Because I felt like he was running a little bit too much. Um, yeah, I mean, he had, I think he had I think he had four designed runs, five maybe. So it, most of them were scrambles. But I'll tell you, the first half, I thought the offensive line played outstanding. I thought yeah. they, they were picking up twists and blitzes, and they played really well. Nebraska brought some wrinkles Adam the second half and they did not handle him well. They did some, they, they'd run a linebacker through and twist some D linemen around and Harry Miller in his first start and Josh Myers didn't manage him well. The interior D line didn't. Now the tackles, they're two NFL tackles. Neither one had had a single QB pressure in the whole game. Oh, wow. So the O-line, I thought the tackles played outstanding. The interior D, uh, O-line, Wyatt Davis included, played just okay. I, I'm not going to say they played bad. And the running backs, I, I, I feel like you saw their strengths and weaknesses. Master Teague is the best short yardage goal line back in the United States of America, but he's that's what he is. That's kind of his role. Yeah. He's yeah. not he, he's not a change of direction guy. He's not doesn't have great vision, and I think Trey Sermon can offer that. But we didn't see a whole lot of Trey, so I, I expect to see more of Trey Sermon moving forward. But I even texted Tony Alford. Steel Chambers looked yes, very intriguing to me. Yes, I mean I'm watching him in the second half. Like this dude is like. Trey Sermon and Master Teague kind of morphed into one. Yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm excited for the future. If not this year, that kid is is talented. And just to kind of yeah, just to kind of tie that back, um, just comment on Fields real quick. The thing that really stood out to me, and that that criticism about him being in the pocket too long, is something that happened when he was at UGA too. That was that was the main reason they didn't yeah. put him over from was they felt that he wasn't ready for the pace of college. And I think that's going to be the biggest question mark on him really elevating to the pro level is can he pick up that that time in pocket? Can he move the ball faster? Can he make decisions faster and read things and see the openings earlier? But the thing that just shocked me was. There was one passing through the wrist. I remember the receiver literally fell on the ground and he yeah. he caught it in front of his face. And the commentator said that ball was so on point. There was nothing that receiver could have done to not catch that. And it's it's just when you see the level of excellence carried through for a full game. I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable execution. It was. He, he he was he was outstanding. I mean, there's nothing you could say, and and except for what we already talked about, like just get yeah. it out a little quicker sometimes. But here's the reality: there's also a lot of times where an athletic guy holds onto the ball longer because he can, because yeah. he can evade a rush. He knows yeah. that this D tackle's not going to touch his jersey, you know. So it's it's a gift and a, it's a give and take, I guess. Like you want him to get it out faster, but sometimes he knows better than we do. Like he cool. he's not going to get sacked. He's good. Just let him hold onto the ball for a minute. Question on that, Zach. Did you see like, um, and I, I don't know on this, so I'm asking you genuinely, like a Kyler Murray or like a Mahomes when they were in college, did we see them tend to hold on to the ball a little bit longer? Those are two very dynamic guys. Yeah, no, they. they I think one probably their one of their greatest traits is they they get the ball out. Both of them, Kyler and, and Mahomes, more than Kyler. Mahomes is ridiculous. Um, it's but not fair. But he he does. But to your point, yes, they they also extend plays a lot like Justin Fields does. But I, they were they're a little more uh, decisive and 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 they kind of have an internal clock that Justin hasn't really figured out yet. 
what is the main thing that allows a quarterback to really mature into that type of quarterback where they're able to move the ball quickly? Yeah, it's just most of the time it's just processing, process, understanding okay. the offense, reading the defense. It's, a lot of times it's with reps, and then it's just it comes down to just processing speeds. I mean, how yeah. how quick you process things and how quick you make decisions. Yeah. And it's just for for Justin, he's here's the problem. You get a guy like him, fastest guy on the team, right? Freak mm -hmm. athlete has been since he was what three, and you you give him that ability his whole life. He's never had to worry about being decisive or getting rid of a ball. Yeah. I used to talk yeah. to Braxton Miller about it. I still talk to Braxton about it. Bra Braxton was very similar. He never had to worry about that stuff because he could just extend the play and find a guy and make the throw. Yeah. And that's what Justin's gotten away with for so long. And he, I've seen improvement, but it's he's still, he's still got to keep working. That's all. And I, that makes there's sense. nothing you take away from the game that would say, oh, man, he didn't get that fixed. He improved at, at everything he needed to. And it's just about work in progress. Keep going. Let's talk about the other side of the ball for a little bit. I, I, it seemed like early on the defensive line play was a little concerning, um, but it seems like they shored things up in the second half. The defense tightened up. What, what did you see on that side of the ball? Um, yeah, the, uh, I mean, the, here's the disconcerting thing that will make Ohio State fans hate me more than they already do. Um, <laughs> they, they, the quarterback run game is killed us in, in the playoffs and it killed us again on Saturday. I mean, the kid and that kid, Luke McCaffrey is going to be a stud by the time he's done. Nebraska. <laughs> and I mean, if the name didn't tell you he was going to be, but um, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I've said all along, people just assumed Zach Harrison was going to be chase young. And it's like, yeah. chase young's the best player I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Not going to be chase young. Like that's ridiculous. And yeah. sure enough. And, and I'm not going to, discredit Zach Harrison, but the pass rush just wasn't there. The most yeah. dynamic pass rusher in the game was Haskell Garrett, and he was outstanding, but he's a D tackle. The DNs yeah. were kind of non-factors. The, the Nebraska ran the ball well against this defense, and I think Sean Wade played excellent. Um, there's a couple guys that did. I think the tough Borland experiment should be over by now, but apparently we're going to keep riding with it. We They named him a champion, so they said he played well, but I watched it. I've watched. I've coached football for 18 years. The, the kid's just not that elite level middle linebacker that Ohio state needs. He's not, and maybe he's the best they got. I don't know, but um, he's just, he struggled. Yeah. And I want to take a second to talk about the secondary, right? Like the reloading. I felt like you, you mentioned earlier about the receivers. It feels like the same type of system is developing over there where guys will only need a year to shine to, to ball. One guy that stood out to me was, was seven banks. Yeah. Um, as his first game as a starter, coming in um and replacing replacing a elite corner in in, in Damon Arnett and Jeff Akuda coming in and, and performing well as well as Sean Wade looking like all the hype is is warranted um I saw a couple of plays that he made that were just phenomenal as well yeah it, I think the secondary was definitely a, a pleasant surprise I don't even want to say surprise I mean I think we knew they had talent we knew that Kerry Combs that's what he does he's he's a he might not be the best D coordinator yet, or he might be. We don't know. But we know that he has a resume of developing corners. Like, that's just – it's what he does. He, like, he goes to bed at night, wakes up in the morning, brushes his teeth, develops corners. <laughs> what he does. And uh, so I, I, we should have known if we didn't know, right? But I thought seven played outstanding. Cameron Brown played really well when he was in there. And uh, I, I'm interested to see how the safety rotation or battle goes between Josh Proctor and Marcus Hooker. Because I thought Marcus Hooker played okay. He missed some tackles where he looked unathletic as hell. Luke McCaffrey's one long run specifically. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that happens. It's not a an indictment on him as a player. But 
he um I'm interested to see the safety battle and I, and I'm really interested to see the linebacking core because Baron Browning looked okay tough struggled Pete Warner actually played really well um so it's it, the defense is a work in progress I mean if when you have the 10th right now they're st they're sitting at the 10th rushing defense in the Big 10 that's that's a problem when you're the Buckeyes I mean yeah. if you're not top 3 you're really bad because you're not you're you have better talent than everyone so yeah. they got to get that yeah. stuff fixed but it's week 1 so give yeah. them time now let's flip the script a little bit, talking about secondary. We saw a whole lot of targeting calls in that game. What what are you thinking about the way they're calling targeting this year, Zach? Do you think there should be some changes made to the rules? Do you think that its uh, impact on the game can be a little excessive at times? I think it's absurd. All and all, all of everything you said, <laughs> everything <laughs> is absurd. Uh, just the fact that you could a kid can can hit another kid in the helmet. Unless it's intentional, which I've maybe seen five of those in the last five years, like intentionally targeted someone. Yeah. Outside of those, an unintentional, like banging of helmets gets a kid ejected. Maybe not even for like for this game, but maybe part of next game too. It's just absurd. Yeah. Like penalize them. Like you can literally grab a kid by the face mask, rip his head all the way around, possibly break his neck, and you just get penalized fifteen yards. Yeah. But if I accidentally touch your head with my head. I can't play for 60 minutes. Like that's just, yeah, the, the, referees need to, the referees need to be granted more discretion in how they execute. They have you, to, you can watch a replay and tell if a guy is doing something intentionally or not. Yeah. Yeah. And not to bring up bad, bad emotions, but like Sean Wade's against Trevor Lawrence last year is just, it's absurd. He I goes in to make a tackle. He goes to hit yeah. him in his chest and, and Trevor ducks and he hits him in the head. How's that Sean Wade's fault? It happened to Bosa too. Yeah. But it's like, why don't you penalize? Like, why is it Sean Wade's fault? You should yeah. penalize Trevor Lawrence and eject him. For, for He's the one that head. lowered his head and hit head yeah. to head. Yeah. It doesn't make exactly. any sense. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I heard one solution that, that I quite liked, which is creating different levels of targeting. Like they have the flagrant Absolutely. one, flagrant two in, in the NBA. Um, that, that's an easy way in my mind where you can, okay, we're going to go to review. We're going to decide if this is some some sort of targeting where it's only, you know, whatever penalty and the person stays in the game, or if it's extreme enough in those unique cases that you mentioned that they actually do get kicked out. But I'm with you. I think the the penalty is far greater than the crime. Yeah, it, uh, it is. And you know what? I, I really think it's what you're dealing with in college football is a lot of egos. And you saw it with the Big Ten when they canceled the season. And they just they waited so long because they didn't want to admit they were wrong. Right. Yeah. And so they, they waited like months and it's like, bro, just admit it and let's go. Like, it's okay. No one's mad. Yeah. And it's the same thing with this rule. It's like, there's so many egos. It's like, they don't want to, it's going to happen. I promise you in the next 10 years, you're going to have what you're talking about part of the, the, mm -hmm. the flagrant one flagrant two, but they're just like such big egos. They're like, eh, I don't want to admit that yet. We'll just keep yeah. riding with this for a while. Yeah. That's, that's so frustrating. Oh, but moving on, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about Penn State this weekend. A lot of people had anticipated this being probably a more exciting matchup just based on the fact that Penn State lost a crazy game on Saturday. So I have a couple yeah. questions. What does that game say about where Penn State is at as a program and your evaluation of Indiana? And then what? <laughs> how should we look at this game coming up on Saturday? Yeah, so so th this game is interesting because uh, after I when I first watched it, it was I watched it like anyone else, just emotional, just like wow, like what a game. But when I went back and studied it, Penn State beat the brakes off of Indiana. Believe it or not, they really yeah. did. I mean, in every statistical category, every part of the game except for one, 
and really kind of two, is the red zone offense. Penn State got down in the red zone six times, scored three touchdowns, and then the other three times walked away with zero points. Indiana got down there six times, uh, five times. They scored four touchdowns and got a field goal, so they walked away with points every time. That's how Indiana won the game. Penn State didn't finish in the red zone. And on top of that, the, Sean Clifford had the worst first half I've ever seen of a quarterback. He had three plays where I was like almost like laughing. They were so crazy. He threw a ball 10 yards over a running back's head on a slip screen to strike right to the corner, five yards over the receiver's head on a crosser for, for an interception. And then he pulled a zone read, and I don't even know what happened. I think he just tossed it to the Indiana D lineman. It was just wild. So you take away those three awful plays by Sean Clifford, and you get him in the red zone and score a couple – at least kick some field goals, and they win the game. I think, it. back to your point, V, it, it speaks to Indiana is actually a pretty good football team, yeah. right? That's part of it. And the other part is Ohio State fans need to not think they're playing an 0-1 Penn State team, they're going to roll. Because Penn yeah. State beat the brakes off of Indiana in every category except for a couple key moments. And if they fix those key moments, that's a solid football team. This is not going to be a walk, walk, you know, you're not going to walk to an easy victory in this one. Yeah, and, and, and as a follow-up, like, you know, when and I'm sure you do this when you talk to SEC fans, they talk about how they'll they'll take the Penn State loss to Indiana and say, "See, your conference sucks. It's just you guys have a cakewalk every every year." And it's like, but then they won't talk about some of the losses that they see in their no. conference outside of outside of Alabama. There's no consistency. Like Auburn is good one year and they're not good another year. What is the act? What is your actual evaluation? of the big 10 overall as a conference and, and how it fits in the landscape. Um, I mean, it's the second best conference in football. That's, that's not debatable that they're, they're not lower than that. There's no, you know, like yeah. that, but um, they're, they're the big 10 is a step behind the sec. They just are. And, and I've tried to speak it into existence for a year and a half now on my show. Um, and I, I lump Notre Dame into the big 10 cause I try to give us another power player, right? Yeah. I'm trying to, like trying to make it happen. But every year, Notre Dame disappoints, Penn state disappoints, Michigan disappoints, Wisconsin loses one or two games and it's just the Buckeyes. And it's like, damn it. Like, yeah, I need one of you to step up to make me right. Like, yes, but it's just not, I mean, and don't get me wrong. I think this year the big 10 is pretty on par with the sec, but I know history, and they're going to they're gonna screw me for saying that here shortly because <laughs> um, I think the SEC is literally Alabama and the rest of them, and I think the Big Ten is Ohio State and the rest of them. Yeah, it's and it's a matter of how good are the rest of them. Yeah, and it's also just I saw Adam Rittenberg's tweet about how Ohio State has won 16 straight games now against ranked Big Ten opponents. And yeah, you can say, oh, that might be the quality of the competition, but it's it, it, I think it lends more to – the quality of Ohio State's program, right? More so than how bad the rest of the conference is. It's just that Ohio State has built a consistency of getting it done in big games in the Big Ten Conference. Yeah, that, that's what it is. And, and, and I mean, it's 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 like anything else. You meet in the middle. Like, it's a little bit of both. I think maybe that sometimes you play an, Iowa, uh, an Indiana team that's 21st in the country, and it's like, yeah, they're not that good, though. They're yeah. certainly not on Ohio State's level, so they should. Ohio State shouldn't lose a game in the Big Ten until one of these other teams starts recruiting like the SEC because Ohio State's the only team above the Mason-Dixon line that recruits like the South does. They're the only one. Yeah, and, and to their credit, you know, the uniforms are sick. The apparel is sick. Like, what high schooler doesn't want to wear that stuff? It's awesome. Right. Yeah. They've done all the right things from the details of how they present themselves as a team to the execution all the way through from a system standpoint. 
to be a top caliber team year after year. And, you know, the results show the work they put in. No doubt. And you guys are businessmen, so you you can relate to this even more so probably than anything. Is that Ohio State's done a great job with their branding. Like yeah. their social media marketing, their branding, like they've done such a good job. Like Clemson and Ohio State are the two that are just yeah. outstanding brands on yeah. social media. And that's where kids are. I know like yeah. the 50-year-old fan might not give a shit about the Twitter, the tweets, but guess what? The 16-year-old five-star does. Yes, yeah. he does. He does. Last Big Ten question before we move on. Wisconsin's quarterback got a lot of hype this mm -hmm. weekend for how he performed. What are your thoughts on him? Is this... Is this something that we that made you a believer um, that Wisconsin has a has an elite level quarterback uh, over there, or or you still think there's there's some evaluation we need to do? Well, I mean, I, I, I would tell you this: for a freshman to come in game one and do what he did, he had he had a better day than Justin Fields, which is absurd, right? He wow. went twenty of twenty one also with one drop, but he threw five touchdown passes, and he's a freshman. And, yeah. and Ohio State recruited this kid. I mean, he they they he is a really good player. And so do they have an elite quarterback? Absolutely. Is he one now? Eh, we'll see. Right? He's yeah. a freshman. I think yeah. in two years when he's a junior, you're going to be like, holy shit, Graham Mertz is still there? <laughs> like, it's going to be wild. But yeah. um, I'm telling you, I'm really – I'm interested to see how things go because of what's been breaking news out of Wisconsin. So he got COVID. The backup got COVID. The third stringer's hurt. So now they're on their fourth-string quarterback for essentially three games. Oh, wow. And that third game is Michigan. And now what I, I just read a minute ago is they have now nine confirmed cases. And so they need wow. like a handful more. I, I have to do the math, but I think they need like five more and they'll pass the threshold and the whole program will be shut down for three games. And now because of the Big Ten's decision or indecision, I guess, there's no bye weeks. There's no postponing. It's just cancellations. So Wisconsin might play five games this year. Oh, wow. Think about that. Wow. Just ridiculous. Wow. And the good thing for Wisconsin is however this year shapes out, they have a historically tough team. They're very oh, tough yeah. to play, oh, very yeah. tough to beat. No Great right. culture around that, that, um, that fan base. So um, whether or not they get it done this year, they're going to be a really tough team next year. There's no doubt. And they got a quarterback. I mean, yeah. whatever he is, I promise you, he's better than they've had in a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> better than Hornybrook, right? Right. Since <laughs> better, he's better than like, since Russell Wilson, right? Yeah. Like, that's the last time they yeah. had a real guy. Yeah, yeah. seriously. Yeah. And, and talking, to, you know, transitioning a little bit here, you know, got to ask you about your guys performing in the NFL. Yeah. Guys that, that you've been on um, and, and, and recruited. First one being Terry McLaurin. Everyone now has seen that clip of his post game speaking post game in the locker room and his leadership yep. skills. You recruited this kid. You know him. You know his family. What makes him so special? He's an elite wide receiver in year two. And also what made him kind of overlooked um a little bit going into the draft? Well, so I'm gonna back I'm gonna back back that statement up a little bit because he's Terry McLaurin's not an elite receiver. He's an elite human being and an elite worker. That's why he performs so well. He's not, I mean, he's fast. He's naturally fast. That's all he is. He's yeah. had to work so hard at every other facet of his game to perform as well as he performs. And I think that's a testament to who he is. He is a grinder. He came in, to, he came to camp. I wanted to work him out. Kerry Combs was recruiting him. Didn't really like him. I was like, this kid might have something. He's really fast and I like him. He came in and he came to camp and I worked with him for two straight hours, just me and him. And I saw like, it's almost like I saw in a window into his soul. 
And it's like, I could see the person he was, how hard he worked, how receptive he was. And I was like, done, I'm offering this kid. I asked Urban Meyer and he almost fired me. He was like, that kid, he stinks. What are you talking about? You're going to offer him. I'm like, coach, I'm telling you, I love this kid. Like, he's like, he doesn't, he, he can't catch the ball. And I was like, yeah, he doesn't have great ball skills, but we'll get that fixed. I want to offer him. So I, I, I pound the table, like, which I've done, I did maybe three times in my entire career with Urban Meyer. So this is not a common occurrence. <laughs> I pounded the table. Urban's like, fine, whatever. You're the receiver coach. Bring him in. So he brings him in. Urban proceeds to just go after the kid about how he can't catch and tells him that I want to offer him, but Urban doesn't want to because he doesn't think he's good enough. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're killing me. <laughs> so then he tells the kid, come back to Friday Night Lights in July, a month later. Work on catching every day. If, and if you catch the ball better, we'll offer you. Terry McLaurin, obviously we ended up offering him. He came to Ohio State. We all know that now. But once he started playing for me, he told me the story. He went home and his dad worked. His mom works. You know, a great family. His mom would take him out back every day and throw him footballs. Wow. It's like every single day for that whole month. And he came back and he caught the ball a little bit better. And Urban, and to Urban's credit, he looked at the kid. And he said, guess what? You still can't catch the ball very well, but you showed me that if I ask you to do something, you're going to do it. You're going to work hard. And so he offered him. I mean, obviously, the kid committed. That was a long story to give you the kind of the just one Great example story, of the kid's yeah. character, right? That's fantastic. And, you know, that this is why we love sports. We love yeah. to see yeah. people who you might not have everything day one put in the work and be able to achieve incredible things as a result. And, you know, the character, the work ethic, the humility there clearly shows in that story and beyond. Yeah, and you know what? It's crazy. That's ab absolutely, first of all. And, and when – Terry McLaurin and Paris Campbell came to Ohio State, right? They were freshmen. They struggled. They weren't good enough. They didn't play at all. They redshirted. You know, it's like the, they took the journey. They weren't like some five-star superstar that just came in and balled like Garrett Wilson or someone like that. They took the journey, the work ethic journey. And when they were freshmen, that was on Fridays before a home game, the guys that everyone knows aren't going to play, they get blown out in the weight room. I mean, just I mean, just the worst workout ever because they, they want them to develop and they know they're not going to play. So it was probably halfway through the season, and Mickey Marotti came into my office, and he goes, hey, let me tell you something. Paris Campbell and Terry McLaurin are going to change the culture of your room forever. He was like, 30 years from now, that culture will be strong because they changed it. And damn it, he was so right. And wow. I, I didn't have a bad culture in 2014 or 15, but it was nothing like the culture we had in 17 and 18 and what they probably still have now. They changed the culture because of their work ethic, character, everything everything we talked about. It's just phenomenal. That's cool. I remember when Paris Campbell ran his, um, his 40, there was a series of tweets from LeBron talking about the work oh, ethic, yeah. and everything yeah. he admired about him. And it, that was uncharacteristic for me to hear LeBron shadow a specific Ohio State player on work ethic. That's yeah. maybe only happened once before. Yeah, so. it was, I think it was mostly the St. V uh, yeah. Uh, connection, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. But, but yeah. still, I mean, oh. there's, there's a definite – level of respect that if you can get it from one of the best ever in basketball or in any sport you're you're on that level work-wise energy-wise that's cool and yeah. that and the work that you put in right it's it's when you get a compliment like that from someone you respect that's only going to boost your confidence to an even oh, yeah. higher level that's why oh, these, yeah. the reason these kids put in this type of work is because they do have some level of insecurity with themselves and working through that and building that confidence. That's one of the most beautiful things to me in sports to see that, to, to, to see a kid who probably had some confidence issues, but works at it, works at it, works at it. And then suddenly they're, they've got 
the confidence that they need to be great. That's it. That's it. And it's so cool when you watch that video, just because you see so much, right? You see the humility where he's talking about, I know I'm just a young guy and not a captain. Like you, you, you see him trying to deliver a message that uh, about the feeling of the team and just, they got to win. And he, he knew they were needed to capitalize on that moment and build momentum. And it's just like so many things that like, you just look at Terry McLaurin. You're like, if my son is that kid one day, wow, did I succeed? Like, wow, yeah. did I succeed? Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. And, and, and now talking about another guy that, that, that you stood on the table for when we were doing our draft evaluations, Donovan Peoples Jones. The, the hey, Peoples Jones. The Peoples Jones. <laughs> my, it's my guy. I, I, I'm, I, first of all, I'm so happy for him. I, could, I, I know he went to Michigan and, you know, I hate him for that. But other than that, I love the kid. <laughs> um, but I even messaged him right after he got drafted. Like him and I went back and forth a little bit about just one, how happy I was for him that he got the opportunity because, uh, you know, without fully di disclosing our conversation, I basically yeah. was like, you didn't get developed worth a damn, but you know what? You're a hell of a player and you're going to make it just grind type of deal and uh so to see him pull off the win for my browns our browns right against the yes. Bengals was was amazing and uh with obj out it, it's it's his time to go make a name because the, the politics of the nfl are crazy like you're a late round guy like him i don't care how good you are if you don't have the right it. situation or opportunity your career's probably over and he's got a chance and most fifth sixth seventh round guys never get that chance he's got one and now he's got to do something with it. That's a that's a sleeper sleeper fantasy football pickup that Zach's giving away. <laughs> there you go. Pick pick <laughs> him up. Unless you're playing me, don't pick him up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then moving forward to this coming weekend, what should we be looking out for, man? Um, well, I think uh, the well, here's here's what we didn't talk about yet, and and I think it's relevant. Is Michigan look really good? By the way, <laughs> like really really yeah. good. I don't like to talk about that. I, I know we don't want to talk about it, but I just want to throw it out there so people know. Like they, they may like show their true form here in the next couple of weeks. Probably not against Michigan State because they're terrible this weekend. But yeah. Michigan looked really good. I had to throw that out there. But um, I think you're going to see a, a battle. I don't think it's going to be a game that people are are, are thinking is going to happen right now, just because they're. People look at things on the surface, right? Penn State yeah. lost. Ohio State rolled. It's like, yeah, Penn State played really well, like we talked about. And Ohio State showed some, some maybe some weaknesses or some, some things, correctable things. And so it's going to be a great matchup because I'm excited to see if Ohio State can perform better in the areas we discussed. And Penn State, will, they'll sure up some of those little leaks in the boat. And it's going to be a battle. This is not going to be a, an easy victory. Uh, Ohio State should win. Ohio State should win pretty handily. But the, I think people could really sleep on this game because of that kind of, I don't want to call it a fluke loss, but that unre un unexpected loss, right? Yeah. So I, I, I do have a quick question on that, right? When you are a coach and a team that you think is, you've been hyping up, hyping up, hyping up, loses to Indiana and your players see that, how do you keep them motivated this week? Because you see it. These are, these are young kids. They see Penn State lose to Indiana, and they might be like, we're going to roll in this game. Well, I think, I think you do exactly what I just what, what, I've, what I did. You study the game, right? And then you explain to them what, what happened. And it's one thing if they got their ass kicked. They didn't. 
they yeah. actually kicked Indiana's ass. And it's really easy when those – because players are smarter than coaches. They're going to cut on the film. They're going to see the fact that Indiana couldn't run the ball. They're going to see the fact that Penn State did you know did good things. They're going to see all of that and go, how did they lose this game? And they just explain yeah. to them. They had one issue. The quarterback made three bonehead plays in the first half, and they couldn't score in the red zone. If they get those two things fixed, this team is 1-0 and and coming to kick your ass. So buckle up. You better prepare and grind to go beat the best version of Penn State. That's the other thing. Indiana didn't get the same version of Penn State Ohio State is going to get. Never has, never will. That, that Penn State team that rolls out in Happy Valley against Ohio State is going to be the best version of that team, just like it is every year. So yeah. don't think you're playing that team that played Saturday. You're playing an entirely enhanced version. It's like uh, they, they took a couple steroids before the game. It's, they do always game. play up to Ohio State yeah. every oh, year, regardless every of the year. record, regardless of what's going on. You know, the, those errors do remind me. I, I want to quickly mention that um, series of errors from the Dodgers to lose that World Series game. I don't oh know if you gosh. guys caught that. Oh, my gosh. Talk about boneheaded plays that will lose a game that you have to end of. <laughs> Right. And it's like if you just looked at the box score, you'd be like, oh, the Dodgers lost. They're going to momentum yeah. sucks. They're going to lose it. Lose the series. It's like, man, wait a minute. Now it's one play. Relax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one very embarrassing play. Very embarrassing play. play. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. So so this weekend, any matchups that we should be looking out for? Any players that you want to highlight? Um, so the, uh, the Ohio State Penn State game is, is the game I've really focused on thus far. Um, I'm, I'm actually mostly I guess I've spent most of my time today all day researching and reading into the Big Ten rules on COVID because this Wisconsin stuff so I think the Ohio State Penn State is a game of the week even though Penn State lost and um, I'm excited to see Garrett Wilson grow and explode I mean this 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 dynamic duo at Ohio State is is I'd say as good as as Buckeye fans thought, which is that's astronomically high, right? Buckeye fans usually yeah. be like, "What do you mean? It's Julio Jones and Mike Thomas 2.0. And you're like, "Relax, fans. Like they're not that good, but they were. If, they're outstanding. If what we were sold that Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham would be side right. by side, but right. in real life, it's actually happening right now. With, right. with but it really it really works. Like, they yeah. have just they have they have Justin Fields throwing to him, which which helps. I mean, right? I'm I'm, yes. I'm not here for your Baker hate, V. I'm not. <laughs> hey, speaking of that, speaking of that, Baker played a phenomenal game after starting out terribly and getting Odell hurt. I blame him for that injury. Well, I'm gonna tell you what, it's self-preservation <laughs> because if, if if Baker doesn't try to feed Odell, he's actually yeah. a solid ass quarterback. He tries to feed Odell all game long and he stinks. So I don't want to say he meant to do it, but Odell's out of the picture, and all of a sudden, this guy's like twenty for twenty. Like, looks like a hey, pro bowl quarterback. If, if we get that Baker, Baker, I will come on the show and apologize publicly. To I, I need that. I need that in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, but hey, I want like dramatic music in the background. No, we'll like, all maybe be shed a tear. I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll do all of that. I won't ever call him. No mention or comparison to Johnny Manziel will ever happen again. Just get us to the playoffs, Baker, and you will deal with no hate ever again from me. And I'm gonna put that. I was gonna be my pin tweet V with like dramatic music and crying, apologizing to Baker. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, that's awesome, Zach. Thanks so much for coming on and weighing in on everything. It's been awesome as always to have you. We're super excited to see Ohio State beat up on Penn State. Uh, for all the players, if you are listening to this, please don't take this matchup for granted and deliver us a W. Uh, that's it, man. Do what you do. All. That's all you got to do. Do what you do. Let's let's talk about a win on Monday. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. 
Thank you, man. Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1. We have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys podcast. Show us some love today. It's time for some news and notes. Are you ready, Partha? I am so ready. So let's start out with this Kanye interview on the Joe Rogan podcast, which just to give some some pretext here, I'm a massive Kanye West fan. Yep. I, I think many, many people were up until he started making statements that I think a lot of people felt were, I don't know, irresponsible or um, out of context. They seem just a little bit extreme. And so I kind of found myself in the masses when it came to judging Kanye. And I didn't want to dislike him because he made all of the music that I grew up loving. Mm -hmm. But I kind of, (laughs) you know, like everybody else was was starting to question like, man, like I'm worried about this guy. Is he okay? And he did this interview with Joe Rogan and I came away from it thinking, man, he is not just okay, but He's a really, really incredible visionary, and I have a lot mm-hmm. of respect for him. You know, what do yeah. you think? Well, I mean, I think I think you you you're right. You know, I think it's all it's very important for us. You know, people always say that they want to seek out opinions and they like hearing opinions that aren't their own. And I think once you start evaluating Kanye West through that lens of of the fact that Kanye West is who he is, what I admire about Kanye West is this. He's a very abstract thinker. He's a creative. That's what allowed him to become the great musician that he is, right? He does have some issues with narcissism and other things that are part of the complexity of Kanye West. But what I admire most about him is that he's infinitely curious. Like, we need more curious people like him in this world because he's willing to seek out knowledge outside of his comfort zone and learn from other people. How he applies that isn't always the best, you know, and he does take positions sometimes that make me uncomfortable as well. But what you have to respect about him is his authenticity. And when he talks and he's rambling, it's because that's how he thinks. And I think you brought it up in terms of there actually being that being a, a way of thinking, I think you said it was horizontal thinking, right? Yeah. So if you could tell us a little bit more about about that. Yeah, I mean, I think you know when I when I heard him kind of go, he calls them riffs, right? He says, "Thanks for letting me riff, riff," because I guess a rant is negative connotation. Yeah. Um, when I hear him jump from idea to idea to idea, it's similar to this concept of horizontal thinking that I was thought recently taught recently where. Uh, basically, I I do this too. I'll find one case, one specific example in which things work a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I'll look at every other industry, every other sector and think through the ways you can do the same thing. So the thing I, I really appreciate about Kanye, he has a vision for a better world. And he's he was very clear on that podcast. It's not just about shoes. It's not just about music or apparel, but he sees all these innovations in terms of societies, in terms of what the, the way of life is the normal person. And, you know, I think, I think that's brilliant. I think that's awesome. I think one thing that I would love to tell Kanye is, Hey dude, you're not the only one out here who thinks this big. There's actually a a pretty solid community and much of Silicon Valley is like that too. There are a ton of people raising big dollars, solving big problems and looking at the world the same way as you saying, Hey, we can make this a a dramatically better place. But one element that I want to highlight about his mentality that I think everybody could live with more 
is his uh, service mentality. So he spoke so many times about um, living in service of God, which is really, really similar to the Hindu concept of Dharma. Um, all Eastern religions kind of have this sense of higher duty that's built mm-hmm. into religions. And really anytime one would live for God within the context of any religion, it is that same attitude that he's embodying. So when we when we see and hear Kanye in that podcast, I think what stands out is this is someone who's not only, you know, one of the most accomplished people in the music industry ever, but he is able to live in in a way where that doesn't get to his head every day. Yeah. I'm sure it does from time to time because we all have those moments. But yep. in general, he came across extremely humble, extremely down to earth, and very gentle, which I really appreciated. Yeah, he's he's that I think that's why so many people root for him, right? It's like he's got these issues, but he is genuine, right? Yeah. And I think as a um as a friend, you you have to embrace the differences that you have with your other friends and you will learn something from him. Um and 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 he's here to do do positive, like you said. Hundred percent. So let's move on from Kanye. We've got Lewis Hamilton. What a brilliant, brilliant human being. He is just, he's the pinnacle of what you can do in his sport just from a driving mm-hmm. perspective. And it's just so classy off the field too. Yeah. I mean, look, Lewis Hamilton, I think putting this in larger context, there's no other um, Formula One driver of color. What he dealt with even getting to this point um, in in that world, we know that it is, especially in in in, in worlds like Formula One and in, in sports in Europe, the racism is a lot more overt. Early on in his career, fans wearing blackface and in the stands, seeing all of that, especially in the time that we're in now, to sh- for him to show that hey, I'm just as good as these other drivers, and I'm actually better, and it doesn't matter that. I'm black is says so much without saying anything that you have to, you have to do nothing but admire it. When you put in context, everything that he goes through on and off the off out of the car, (laughs) I was about to say out on and off the field, but in and out of the car, uh, you have to just admire and respect how he carries himself. He reminds me a lot of Derek Jeter. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. And I've, I've had a lot of contact with his business team, um, just being in LA and, uh, he, he works with some really, really quality, highly respected people. So, uh, class act, it's a real class act. And I know that's the stereotypical saying for a black athlete, but I mean that in a non, uh, non stereotypical way. He's <laughs> definitely, definitely. Act. And it, it's so important for us to, to like take away that part of it. Right. Yeah. But it's also important for us to give it the proper context, um, that it needs, um, as well. Yes. So now moving forward, we've got our Ohio's own Kid Cudi just announced. I'm so excited about this. Man on the Moon 3, the third part to his wonderful series that that brought him fame and um, really just idolization amongst teenagers from 2005 onwards. Yeah, I mean, Kid Cudi, man, what can you say about the guy? I think he's one of the most under underappreciated creative geniuses that we have. We talked about Kanye earlier, but I give Cuddy a lot of credit for Kanye's genius, right? What he did on with him on 808s and Heartbreak 
and 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 Kanye gives him that credit as well. And I think when we look at Kid Cudi as an specifically as an Ohio native, the pride that we have to feel for for what he did in hip hop, right? Like he was the first artist to really, really take alternative music, electronic music, and merge it with hip hop. And in a cool way. And like you would listen to some of the records and he would go between genres on one record, right? Yeah. yeah. And 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 just the courage that he has to be himself, to be honest in his music, talk about his depression, but also always, always be true to self, right? Like you may not agree with everything that he says, you may not agree with everything he says in his music, but what you can appreciate about him is he's consistent and clear on his stances on on everything. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I always appreciate, Kid Cudi, I, I, I see him standing kind of in this bucket of artists who stand um, in the scope of weed culture, right? Like Snoop Dogg, like yeah. Lifa. These are genuinely positive human beings that have done a lot of good with their careers, you know? And yep. I love that. I love seeing that happen, especially a guy from Ohio coming out, becoming one of the greatest artists of all time and making it. I mean, that's that's a great story. So I don't know what the Sonics will be like on this, but I'm definitely going to support it, listen, do what I can. Yeah. I mean, we've waited 10 years since the last one. I can't believe it's been 10. But um, it's always exciting when an artist you respect comes out with new music. Seriously. So now let's get uh, a little bit off of the positivity bandwagon and get into the realistic politics world that we've all been living in. So um Let's talk first about Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, she went through her confirmation hearings and confirmation process within the Senate. Uh, this was a really, really interesting process because of all the controversy around the timing of her nomination. Um, a lot of the context for those who don't know is that uh, four years ago at the end of Obama's term, he had a very hard time getting any of the Supreme Court seats or federal judge seats filled because the Senate was completely Republican controlled at the time. Um, Congress itself was not super bipartisan in that time. And so the Republicans blocked every single nominee that Obama brought forward. And they expressed at that time that, hey, we're only blocking these nominees because it's close to the end of your term. So if things were reversed, we would do the same thing. We would nominate <laughs> anybody at the end of a term. Four years later, it's the end of a term. They want to nominate people. So obviously that has people upset. <laughs> However, I will say this. Politicians are politicians. At the end of the day, nobody's breaking any rules. By yeah. everything that I've read and all of the opinions that I've seen from fellow judges, she seems extremely well qualified. She, Everyone has testified that her personal beliefs don't get into her rulings. She's an originalist, which means she interprets, interprets the Constitution almost literally from a word-to-word -word standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a more definitely a more conservative mindset that's being brought on. Um, and I think a lot of the fear people have about this is, uh, at least from what I've heard, primarily around uh, abortion rights and Roe v. Wade. And I think it's, it's important to understand that the Supreme Court does not make policy decisions, but they just rule on whether the federal government or the state government should be allowed to make policy decisions. They're there to yeah. arbitrate and limit the power of the federal government from getting too large. So it's just very important to put into context that while you're getting a lot of news, while you're getting a lot of people telling you it's the end of the world, you have to actually research how the government works, what these roles are. And ultimately, I've, I've had friends text me. I had somebody text me today 
um, her answer in her hearing on climate change. They said, hey, she didn't want to answer the question on climate change. What do you think about that? What I think is that's not her job. She's not running the EPA. So I don't really care what she thinks about climate change. I care how good of a lawyer she is and how good of a judge she is. And that's that's really kind of how I, I judge this stuff. So I tend to fall out of the extremist camps, but I really want to make this point and urge all of our listeners to just think about where are you getting your information from? And if you're yep. getting it from any news source that's not one of the boring ones, to be honest, like C-SPAN or something, it's probably biased or spun in some way to trigger you emotionally. So if yes. you your emotions rise when you're reading a headline, it's probably not a headline that you should be reading to get to the facts. Yes, that's, that's, a, that's a great, great point. And I think I want to evaluate this thing in the larger context of government, right? And where priorities should lie versus where they actually lie. Um, we're, we're at a time where we're, we're dealing with a pandemic. Death tolls are rising. The economy, from a Main Street perspective, is definitely struggling. If you get outside of the rich, the richest 3% of this, this, this nation, everybody is struggling. And I think what we have an issue with here is it was 215 days ago or 216 now days ago since Congress passed the first stimulus bill. If you weren't eligible for unemployment or unemployment benefits, you got a $1,200 check. That $1,200 check averages out to about $5.58 a day that the average American has been getting since the passing of the first stimulus. Unemployment is rising. These politicians are in office paid for by all of our tax dollars. And so the optics of this is what bothers me more than the actual appointment. If you have to appoint a judge, appoint a judge, but that should not happen. And you ignore the need for an economic stimulus, you know, and, and, and quite frankly, like the candidate that I supported, you know, really supported was Andrew Yang because he, because he understands how our economy works. What I don't understand about these politicians is that a time like this, a, an economy that runs on 70% consumption, if people don't have jobs and aren't able to consume, most of that consumption is happening from the middle class and lower, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you just take that away, that's going to eventually have an impact on the overall economy. And that's why you're seeing restaurants close and other consumer-based small businesses close at the rate that they're closing at. And that's what's really bothering me about this is where they're placing their priorities and the fact that we don't have a stimulus bill still of any sort. Um, and they're saying now that we're probably going to wait until January for that. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's definitely frustrating being a part of the population to see your government focus on things that are not really the most pressing issue at hand, especially when so many people can't afford to pay their rent, buy food, are out of jobs, um, especially in cities and states that are still closed down. Like I'm in LA, uh, still a lot of services are closed. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't disagree with that sentiment at all, V. I, I think you're super spot on. It's a really, really tough time for a lot of people. Um, I want to kind of segue from that a little bit because I've been feeling away kind of about this big picture going into the election. Yeah. I don't want to take away from the struggles of the regular everyday person, but I really just want to put out a statement that I feel 
helps people better assess what's going on in the country mm-hmm. and how they should interact with whether it's news, whether it's social media posts, whether it's information leading into voting, which is happening um, next week. You know, so yep. um, there's a ton of incentive for media publications, social media headlines, even your peers on social media to post content that's going to cause you to react because every reaction pushes up content in the algorithm and eventually it leads to income. For a lot of publications, that's how they're driven. And for a lot of people, we're all driven on that dopamine release. So we want to share triggering things anyway. It's how it's going to be. And it's extremely important to recognize that a lot of the facts that you're reading on a day-to-day basis are spun. Everything we're saying, I mean, we're, we're trying not to, but it's yeah. coming through our own lens and our own perspective. And so you should research it on your own. But I really believe that as a citizen in a democracy, you have one, one primary responsibility, and that is to be a member of the informed electorate. So it means you need to do your research. You need to understand the issues at hand. You need to understand what you need to understand about the country, the government, the economy, as much as you can, given all the million other things you have to do in your day to day. Everybody knows you're not a full-time politician. You're not a congressperson. You don't need to do things to the degree that they do, but you should seek to be informed. And when it's time to cast your vote, the ballot is a secret ballot on purpose. And it's, it, everything is designed in a way such that your vote isn't being argued upon by other people. People aren't trying to influence you into voting a single way. Before we had this level of news media, when this system was initially designed, it wasn't like people could put out a triggering headline or spill dirt about an opponent and actually cause people to vote a certain way. These things were just not realities at the scale that they are. So a lot of what we're seeing in terms of political strategy nowadays is leveraging people's emotions. It's, it's very similar to marketing, leveraging people's emotions to cause action, right? Yep. Which can be good. It can be bad. But when it comes to a political election, I, I really feel it's an individual's responsibility to research and to cast their vote. And at the end of the day, you could be wrong. You might end up voting for someone who... A year down the line, four years down the line, you regret casting that vote. But that's a part of life. That's a part of learning. And in a democracy, the whole goal is to set a government in place that is representative of the thoughts and beliefs of a country at a point in time. And then four years later to refresh that. Our democracy itself is designed intentionally such that change does not happen extremely rapidly. If you want extremely rapid change, join a startup. That's where you're going to create some impact and disrupt an industry. But if you join the government, if you participate in government, that is intentionally a high friction machine. And it's done that way so that if one person becomes a leader through whatever means, and it was a bad choice for the people, then they don't have the potential to do so much bad, just like good politicians, good presidents don't have the potential to do so much good. That's just the reality of how our government is structured. And it takes hundreds and hundreds of people all working in unison to accomplish anything within the government. And that's super hard. I mean, have you even tried to get 100 people to show up to one thing at the same time? That's impossible, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of nuance around this election. And the media in general is going to make you feel like things are 10 to 100 times worse than they actually are. I think the most yep. important thing that you have to remember as a member of 
uh, really as a citizen of America is that it's very unlikely things will drastically change over the next yeah. four years. It's, it's borderline impossible. So whatever the media is telling you, whatever others are telling you, our system is structured in a very intelligent and strong way. It's, it's very robust. That's why it's still around hundreds of years after it was created. And when you go to vote, you have to have that confidence that the system is built to succeed. And if it's not, it's modified. If it's not working, we have a history of amendments that have modified the rules that were originally set. And yes. that would be the path to modify something. But the reality is we're just not alive in an extreme enough time where, um, you know, th those things just have not have not needed to happen. Yeah. I agree with you 100 uh, percent, Partha. And the most important thing is is to be informed and right. And that is by going online and reading the policies that it, it can be overwhelming, right? Sometimes to actually go, but, but do it because it's, it's the value that you gain from knowing what you're voting for and, and being confident in your vote versus being told how to vote is as liberating of a feeling as you can have. And one thing that I will add to, to your statement is also, it's, it's also important when you are a member of a society and a citizen of a society to not only evaluate things from the lens of your own personal needs, but also evaluate it in the context of what is best for the country and what candidate is, is, is best for not only the economy, not only the environment or pro-life versus pro-choice, but who is the best representative of your nation that you want out there and also is going to listen to as many different groups as possible. This idea of politics being so special interest, I know this is like a very, very optimistic viewpoint on things, but we do have to get back to figure out a way for us all to kind of work together. We live in a very, very polarizing time in our political landscape. And I do think that we do need to figure out how to restore that balance. And in part the the thing that we as citizens can do to help restore that balance is is by being educated, like you said, and then also making decisions that sometimes don't necessarily even favor you the most. Um, and that's a very hard thing for us to do in a capitalist society where everything is is about self. Yeah, 100%. Speaking of balance, let's segue to a situation without some balance. Um, this Purdue Pharmaceutical settlement that just came out. Um, so just for everybody's context, Purdue Pharmaceuticals was um, the primary manufacturer of Oxycontin. And this led to the opioid epidemic that has plagued this country for the last several years, specifically Ohio, which has been really, really brutally impacted. I think, uh, was it Arizona? That was another one of the states. Yes. That suffered from it. Many rural, rural towns and areas throughout the nation have been hurt by this. So the uh, Justice Department settlement that they reached is that they owe $8 billion and the company is being restructured. So it's owned by a public trust and uh, nobody's going to jail for um, <laughs> causing more deaths than the COVID epidemic so far uh, through opioids. And uh, man, honestly, that's it's shocking, and I'll let you have the glory of, of saying the, the analogy you made to me earlier, uh, but it's, it's just shocking that there's not consequences 
to this that are more significant than that. Yeah. I mean, you have low level drug offenders who've sold marijuana in jail for years. And these guys in this company who has caused unbelievable damage from a financial standpoint to our country, from a real life standpoint to families, not just from a death standpoint, but the effects of having an addict in your family or addiction in your family to, 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 to countless other things and to profit at the level that they've profited at selling a narcotic, right? And encouraging its overprescription, encouraging its, its prevalence on the black market as well, to see no jail time, to see zero jail time, and to actually have the current attorney general um, encourage them not to have jail time. Uh, for the potential impact that it has on public public trust is very it, it's just it's just outrageous man it's so outrageous and these are the things that make citizens so easily trigger right yeah. it's like when you see things like this okay well the rules really are are different when you have billions of dollars and you're a multi-billion dollar corporation and can afford the right attorneys you can get away with heinous crimes like this yeah and you know what what adds a little bit of color to this historically which is even more frustrating is that a lot of the uh pursuing of marijuana um marijuana as uh, crimes really started in the 70s as a response to the anti-vietnam war movement at least yes. in the 70s so a lot of the legislation that was used primarily to affect low-income communities, lock up a lot of minorities. Uh, it was done to, like, essentially to lock up those voices. It was created for that purpose, and there's pretty strong record of that. And it seems that in this country, if you want to sell drugs, then all you need to do is register with the FDA to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. And there's no real crime or punishment there. I mean, yes, they lost their company, but it just... It's just not really the same at all. And, and they're not even really doing a real financial audit. Think about $8 billion to all of us sounds like a lot of money, but that's literally a slap on the wrist when you compare that and con put that in context with how much money they've actually generated right. from, this, from this drug. And the company has been, uh, in the restructuring with the settlement, they declared bankruptcy, but it's very unlikely, and I, I didn't get to get to this level of detail, but it's very unlikely they can go after personal assets. No, they can't. So the pharmaceutical execs that oversaw this while it was happening for the last however many years are completely scot-free. And, you know, man, like it, this hits home for me because I, in high school, one of, the, one of the, the kids we went to school with lived in my neighborhood. His dad went to jail for... Um, unlawful prescriptions as part of this epidemic there the addiction problem was something that i witnessed firsthand and i saw somebody get punished for it and it just it's just sad when you see a healthcare system allow a drug to exist for so long that so clearly has such negative consequences yes and, you know i definitely have a lot of frustration for the lack of consequence here but there's an equal amount of blame on the FDA for not taking a bigger step sooner because this problem was not, none of this was hidden. This was in plain sight. 
there's plenty of other painkillers you can give people. And yeah. you know, the great painkiller, the one that's illegal, marijuana, that for some reason you're still in jail for if you sold a little bit or carried a little bit 10 years ago. Yeah, it's it's just it's it's one of those things that makes us as Americans have to look in the mirror and say there's some things that just aren't right that that we just can't continue to allow. And and how we solve these big problems I don't know because it it is true when you've got more money, you've got more power, you know? And and that power disseminates through the political sphere, it disseminates into so many areas that it's like, how do you solve? How, I mean, I would ask you this is how do we actually solve something like this? Because it is, it seems to be systemic. Yeah. You know, I've actually been thinking about this, so I don't have a concrete answer yet because I'm still researching pharma, but there, I guarantee you there is a capitalistic pro market way to fix the pharmaceutical industry. Our whole company mission is to fix a sector of healthcare called durable medical equipment. Yes is entirely a sector that you know crutches walking braces like or braces walking boots all all the boring part of healthcare basically but all of this stuff that's very forward facing has terrible form factor people don't like it people don't use those products unless they have to we're looking to completely reinnovate how that how that works and looks and feels and how how we see it in society and i think that healthcare can be cleaned up and rebuilt in a really interesting way um, but it it does require transparency because it's easy to get into, you know, software as a service. It's really easy to get into all these new trending tech industries because there's so much information online about them. But industries like pharma, like healthcare, while they have transparency in terms of sharing the regulations around them, these regulations are hard to parse. They're boring. They're difficult. And the system is it obscures on purpose because there's so much going on underneath and so just to see you know this settlement is is one more example of how much needs to fix needs to be fixed in our healthcare and pharmaceutical industry and this is not this is not a party issue it's not like democrats or republicans either one's going to do better at solving this but these healthcare companies and executives benefit tremendously from being heavily involved politically that's how they've escaped for so long mm -hmm. look at you know, the tech side of things, I, I make this joke, but it, there's some truth to it. The reason that people are talking about regulating Facebook is because, all, and really all of these data tech companies is because tech guys started flexing when they got some money, they started showing it off and Silicon Valley culture became a thing. Yeah. Healthcare execs, you don't even know what they look like. No, you don't. That's on purpose. It's all on purpose. And that's how you move if you're really running one of those big companies because you don't want the eye on you. You don't want the no, public. You don't because that every single one of them, you know, and that is has some dirt, has some things that they're doing that are inappropriate to get ahead. And it's it's very, very challenging. It's 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 a scenario too that, you know, it is very expensive. One thing I one thing I will say to balance what you're saying is it is very expensive to bring a new drug to market, to go through the testing process. You know, you're talking about three to four billion dollars to get a drug even to market. So although we do sympathize with that, it does create a scenario in which people will shirk some of the rules because the risk and the stakes are so high, right? Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree.
Man, so uh, the last thing to mention, election day is next week. Do you have any any thoughts on that, V? I think we covered it a lot earlier. I think your points were great, right? It's it's take the time to educate yourself and vote. Disconnect from the noise and vote. And also focus on your state and local elections. Everyone's focused on the national election. But the the things that that impact you the most or what are happening, what's happening at the local and state level. So educate yourself on those issues, see where you stand or what you believe and go into that voting booth, having at least some understanding of all of those issues. That's, that's, that's my two cents. That is such a great point. And an exercise that I did recently um, that helped me to kind of see the difference was I, I took a list and I wrote down, every legislation that was passed at the federal level that legitimately had an impact on my life. So I had to do something different or I was impacted financially as a result. And then I did the same state and local. And it just showed me how much more that affects me happens right in my neighborhood. Yep. Yep. It's critical, man. It's critical. Awesome. Well, that's it for news and notes and stay tuned for a thrilling interview with James Ahedabo. Ondo Media here in Columbus has been working with us to keep the Pilot Boys in production during the pandemic, as well as getting our YouTube videos going. It's all about telling your story to your audience. So give John at Ondo Media a shout. You can find all of their media consulting at ondomedia.com. Welcome back to the Pilot Boys podcast. Really excited about our next guest. Very accomplished man and a good friend of mine, James Ahedabo. Super Bowl champion on the football field. Great father, great entrepreneur off of it. Looking forward to getting into your story, man, and, and the many layers of it. Oh, well, V, man, I appreciate you guys having me on the show. You know, I'm excited. You you know, V reached out to me and said, hey, you know, looking at, you know, having a slot open here and, and wanting to get you on the podcast. And I jumped at the opportunity um, just to, you know, kind of share some of, uh, you know, the trials and errors of life um, and then, you know, also the benefits of the hard work. And so, and I'm excited to be on, on the podcast and uh, you know, joining some uh, you know distinguished gentlemen. <laughs> Love that, James. Can we can we just start out real quick and hear the story of how you and V met each other? Wow. Well, we I mean we've you know kind of had mutual friends um, you know from just you know our walks of life. I mean you know V you know I called him the mayor of Houston because he knew everybody i mean you know if you needed anything he was the guy to go to and so um you know from my time when, once i moved down to houston um you know we met we linked up together and it was um you know we we're best friends ever since um you know really you know very like-minded you know when i first met him i was just like man there's something about this guy like you know it's rare and you know we'll probably get into it but there's you know something about you know, a person, you know, who grows up in a similar background, you know, in terms of, you know, immigrant parents and certain work ethics and traits that, you know, you only get in your household, like you're not going to get it going to school. And so, you know, um, real early, those are, you know, keen things that we, you know, both connected on um, and, and cultivated, you know, a, a phenomenal friendship, you know, from that. So. Yeah, definitely, man. I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. When you have shared experiences in your past, and how you grow up, regardless, you know, he's James is Nigerian, I'm Indian, but the experiences are very similar. And it's it's great when you can make those connections and build real relationships the way that we have. Can we talk a little bit about some of these immigrant values? I know um, 
James, for you growing up, I mean, I'm sure a lot of these not only shaped the way you view the world, but also probably played a role in, in your success on the field and, and off the field. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of your upbringing, some of the things you picked up from it and how that led you into football? Yeah. Um, you know, growing up in an immigrant, you know, household, Nigerian, um, American household, our parents really wanted to instill, you know, the values of hard work. Um, you know, often, you know, growing up, you know, we didn't have an opportunity to create a crutch for ourselves in terms of, you know, someone is viewing me or blocking the door of me trying to go into based on, you know, just my race or ethnicity. That wasn't allowed because, my parents always looked at it as we worked too hard to even get into this country for you to have that mindset to hinder you from accomplishing anything that you wanted to. So um, that early on just wasn't accepted. I mean, was it things that we dealt with? Of course, you know, there's growing up in Massachusetts, of all places, you're going to deal with, you know, um, discriminatory, you know, uh, offenses and so forth. But yet that wasn't a crush. It wasn't an excuse. You know, what you got judged on is, you know, what you performed at and academically um, and the hard work that we put in. You know, those are the values growing up in our in our household. If you truly want to accomplish anything, then you make a plan and you execute and, and you accomplish it. And so, you know, having those values, having, you know, parents, you know, who were, you know, Nigerian with, you know, the strong Nigerian accent, the disciplinary. I mean, growing up in our house, it wasn't like, hey, you know, you did something wrong and you got a whooping. Like, no, like my dad was all about military punishment. Like he would have us, you know, doing wall sits, holding <laughs> a pack of books with our arms open, you know, in front of us. <laughs> and, you know, you'd have to hold that for as long as he said so, you know, like those are like the disciplinary things that, you know, that we got. And it was like, you know, that the last thing I want to do <laughs> is hold the wall sits or Superman planks or whatever it may be. But, <laughs> you know, it was, you know, creative punishments that, you know, that, that, that we got and, you know, instill that discipline in us. And oh. you know, what's, what's, what's also unique for us as first generations and you specifically as a first generation Nigerian, we see a lot of Nigerian American athletes now um, picking up, but, but Nigerians are much like a lot of foreigners. They look at sports and say, that's a distraction from your academics. Yeah. That's 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 something you do as an extracurricular activity. They don't necessarily take sports dreams seriously. Take us into into that with your parents and, and how that worked. I know you had older siblings, which helped. Yeah. Um, but but just tell us a little bit about about how you were able to get your parents to buy into your dream of being an NFL player. Yeah, when growing up, I mean, even when I was six years old. I mean, my parents, you know, they loved soccer. That's, you know, the main sport in, in our country. And, you know, anytime, you know, the super Eagles are on, it's like, stop, stop traffic. It's, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's real football. Yeah. Um, and so growing up playing soccer, that's what my parents, my dad loved the fact that I was a goalie. And, um, and then when I wanted to make that transition to actually playing football, he was like, there's no, there's no point. He's like, you know, you're, you're playing, you know, one sport and it's, you know, in the fall. Other than that, you can just, you know, kind of continue to focus on, you know, your reading, writing, academics and so forth. Um, and it wasn't until you know, I kind of, you know, just, you know, <laughs> you know, violated my parents' will, so to speak. Like my dad said no. And I just went and tried out for the football team anyway um, and made the team. And then I invited my dad out to a game. 
And I remember him watching my first game and seeing how like much how much I excelled from everyone else. And mind you, I was, you know, seven years old, you know, but how much I excelled from the competition around me. And he was like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe you can play. I'll let you play. <laughs> and, and then eventually he loved it. But that the thing in the Nigerian culture was they only knew and they only at that time they knew what took them to get there. And that the opportunity was a, a higher education. And so that's why so many immigrants you see them leave their countries for the opportunity of the American dream, quote unquote, which is higher, you know, uh, qualified quality of, uh, of education. And then now you're seeing in this new, you know, second, third generation Nigerians that are coming up that you're seeing in the NBA and the fourth generations that you're seeing, seeing leave Ohio state, you know, and, and, and enter the, enter the draft. Um, their parents are now seeing the the footprints that the the OCU Minoras and you know James E. Hedibos and you know Christian Okoyes that have paved in the NFL and saying, well, there's something more to this. Yes, you can get an, an academic scholarship, but then you can also you know make a good living playing in the NFL. And so you, now you're seeing more of that 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 the, those doors open. I love that you touched on this notion of how. You know, each each race really has to carve its own paths, right? And it has so much to do with how early that that group of people comes to the United States. I think V and I experienced this a lot being of Indian descent, but just being brown and talking about sports and entertainment is a new new thing in general, right? Like just doing this podcast with you is a new thing for us in our race. So I'm a, I'm such a huge fan of the personality type that it takes to, you know, look at your parents and say, Hey, I'm going to do something that has really not been done before by people that look like us. And I'm going to show you how to do it. And to then accomplish that successfully. I mean, hats off to you. Um, yeah. And it says a lot about your character too. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, one thing that, um, you know, another thing that kind of jumps out to me is, you know, for our parents, there was no plan B. You know, oftentimes you hear the notion of, you know, have your plan A. And if your plan A doesn't work, be able to fall back on your plan B. Well, you know, for my parents, there wasn't a plan B. It was like all or nothing. And we're going to make this thing work. And so I often at a young age took that same approach as it related to playing, you know, football and said, there isn't a plan B. Like if I truly sacrifice and and do what it takes to be successful in this league or in, in in high school or in in college well then i'll bear the fruit of that sacrifice you know oftentimes you know people are afraid to go all in for the notion of i might fail and this might not work out so they have one foot in and one foot out and then it doesn't work out and they say well hey now i need to go try something else well maybe it was the fact that you weren't all in and so that was kind of the approach that you know that me and my siblings we always took and said hey this is what we want to do Let's go do it. You know, my sister, she's a successful fashion designer. I mean, she started, you know, knit, sewing clothes in her basement. And, you know, now she's, you know, on New York Fashion Week and other things. I mean, it goes to that same notion of, you know, sacrifice and putting in the work. And also to, to, to extend that, it's the self-confidence that it takes to be able to do that, right? Because your story isn't the five-star prospect who who had every college looking for him? It took self confidence and consistent belief in yourself 
through high school. Obviously, you were a great high school player, and that's why you got a college-level scholarship. But you weren't being recruited by the Alabamas and the Ohio States. You went to UMass. So, so take us into that element of it, of you knowing that you were probably a better player than you were getting respect for um, at certain times during your career. Yeah, well, be- believe it or not, V, when I was in high school, I mean, I was maybe 145 soaking wet. And UMass and a few other schools, Boston College and like Sacred Heart, all, all, all schools up north, were actually there to see one of my teammates play. And during that time, they saw, you know, saw me play and were like, oh, that, that guy, you know, that Betty Hedibo kid, he's, he's all right. He, he, you know, he's good. <laughs> and in, in the midst of that, you know, knowing that we we're best friends, their whole pitch for recruiting was trying to get us as a package deal saying, Hey, if, you know, if we get, you know, you know, this Anabaku kid and, and, you know, we'll get, get a head of boo as well. We want both of them and we'll put them on scholarship. Well, Mike ended up going to Georgetown cause he was all about academics and so forth. And so then UMass and I think UMass sacred heart and one other school were the true schools that were re- recruiting me. And UMass was like, Hey, we'll have you come on as a preferred walk on and, you know, and give you an opportunity to earn a scholarship. And so for me, I just wanted to play football at the next level. I remember my guidance counselor telling me, Hey, well, you should look at a D three school, you know, in terms of playing football, because Amherst really isn't known for playing football at all at a high level. And I was like, well, that's, that's a lie. You know, I'm, you know, and so we, I walked on to UMass and, you know, during that process, it went from, Oh, you're from Amherst. You could never play here. You're talking about guys from California, Virginia, Florida, you know, top high schools, you know, um, where, you know, they, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, where, you know, it's a football factory and you have all these, you know, guys coming out of there. Um, and then it went from, okay, well, maybe you could play for us, but I know the rest of the guys in Amherst play for us, you know, so you had to earn that respect. And so over time, that's kind of what kind of what happened, just, you know, kick down doors. What was it about your game that was able to stand out despite all of that doubt? What was it that you brought to the field that kind of earned that respect? Um, the physical nature in which I played the game. From a young age, I was very, you know, relentless, played with a, a certain chip and tenacity, wanted to win more than anyone else on the field at all times, um, and always used that to pick and demand more out of my teammates. And so, um, you know, there was a saying that one of my, um, you know, high school teachers had was, you know, he used to watch our games and he would turn his back to the game and just listen for the tackle and be able to know who made the tackle on the field. Meaning if I, you know, hit someone or not, how hard the sound was, Um, you know, and I just always played with that edge and that dominating um, mentality on the field. Um, and, and that kind of is what separated me. The, there, there was that bit of, man, he plays the game just different. And, um, you know, that kind of gave me that edge and continued to allow me to grow into the player that, that I became. So you find success at, at, at the college level after being doubted. And yeah. then you get ready and you go into the NFL and they doubt you again. Yeah. You go undrafted and you get, you get signed by the Jets. Uh, take us into that process and what you went through. Did you have, was your confidence shaken at all by the fact that you were undrafted and, and how did you then 
go forward and look at the opportunity that was presented despite being undrafted? Yeah, I, I never, never doubted myself or doubted that I could play on Sundays. I think my goal, even in high school, I was never like, hey, I want to play in the NFL. As a little kid, I said, yeah, you know, I love Emmett Smith. I love the, the, the Cowboys. And I was like, man, I want to play in the NFL. But once I got to the age of high school, I, you know, went from, you know, setting more, you know, um, obtainable goals, you know, and, and saying, hey, I just want to play at the next level. I just want to play college football. And once I started playing college football, um, I was like, I want to be an All-American, you know, and, and then I was was an All-American. Then I was like, hey, you know, I want to be one of the, the top in the country. And, you know, then I was up for, you know, the Buck Buchanan Award, which was one of the top defensive players in the country. So there was just ground level things that I kept doing to push myself to never get complacent. And then once I got to the NFL, it wasn't a matter of can I play on Sundays it was a matter of earning everyone's respect and proving them that I could play on Sundays. And so that's a mentality. I remember I got the, the, the call to, you know, on, on draft, it was the second day of the draft and, you know, um, Cincinnati Bengals gave me a call and they said, Hey, you know, we, we love you. We, we are looking, we have a six round pick coming up here and we, we need a safety. Um, you know, we're, we're thinking about drafting you. So just be, be ready. And so the six round came, you know, they, they picked up another safety. Then the seventh round came and they called me back and said, hey, coming up in the seventh pick, we're going to pick you. We're going to draft you again. Well, they ended up drafting, you know, uh, another Nigerian safety from Notre Dame. And then they brought me out for a workout. And so that rookie minicamp in, in Cincinnati, I outplayed all their draft picks. But it would have made them look bad if they signed me and released the draft picks that they drafted. <laughs> so they ended up saying, hey, this isn't going to work out and sent me on my way. By, by the time I got back to UMass, um, Don Brown, who's, you know, uh, the defensive coordinator for Michigan, go blue. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, was my, uh, he, was my, he was my head coach at the time at UMass. And he made a call and said, hey, let me just, you know, make a call. And he called the New York Jets. Uh, general manager at the time, Mike Tannenbaum, and he's a UMass grad. And so he said, hey, we'll bring him out for our rookie minicamp. And, you know, you tell him to pack his bags as if he's going to stay here and he'll have to prove, you know, what he can do. And, you know, that rookie minicamp, I mean, our rookie class at David Harris, Darrell Rebus, um, Chancey Stuckey, you know, who played at Clemson. I mean, there, we, we were loaded in terms of the talent, um, the talent level. And I went in there and saying, hey, Anything Revis does, I'm going to do. So if he's number one in the line, I'm going to be number two in the line. And, you know, he's going to compete hard. I'm going to compete hard. And just went with that mentality to prove um, that I could make it. And, you know, before the end of rookie minicamp, you know, general manager came over to me during practice and said, hey, I just wanted to let you know you earned a contract with the New York Jets. And so, you know, that, that, that was history after that, you know. It's pretty cool, man. And I think one of the things that – you know, I, I really love hearing you talk about is the way you, you set up your goals through the process of, of your growth, getting from, you know, youth all the way up to the pro level. Every step you took was very bite-sized. You didn't set your eyes too far away from what you were doing in the current moment. And so it wasn't anxiety about, well, oh crap, I had a bad game. Am I going to still be able to make the NFL? That's not what you were thinking about at any point. But you were like, how do I maintain my starting spot? And then how do I become a, a, the best player on the team? And then how do I become an All-American? Each step 
It's very measurable, very current. And I think that kind of mindset is something I also see in a lot of great business leaders as well. So it's really cool to see you thinking of things in, in that way. And I think another thing I want to note is the UMass thing. I, I also am familiar with Andy Isabella, who came out of UMass, yeah. plays on the Cardinals. Great yeah. guy. That's my yeah. So I'm fortunate enough to be able to have hung out with him once um, and just like picked his brain for an hour and a half. And it's just you guys are coming out of UMass so humble, so down to earth, and y'all work way harder than anybody I've met. Is that a cultural thing up there? Is that just what happens when you're from a school that's not highly touted for being able to send guys to the pro level? Where does that come from? Yeah, it, it, it definitely does. I mean, to your, you know, your first point, you know, this is stuff that I've learned, you know, post, you know, NFL in terms of the business world is, you know, the, the acronym SMART, you know, which is, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, uh, relevant and, and, and time bound, you know, and having that mentality ingrained into me, even from a young age with my goal setting, not really knowing that that's what I was doing, but I always made sure that I gave myself little bite size, you know, pieces that I could you know, accomplish and then say, okay, well, you did that. Now let's go to the next piece. And so having that mentality along with the small town, small school, the, the chip on your shoulder in terms of, you know, not being highly recruited out of high school, no matter what your accolades were. Like the reality is, you know, unless you're, I mean, I can't even think of really guys that are out of Massachusetts high schools that are, you know, top recruits. I mean, it just it doesn't, you mass Massachusetts in general just doesn't get a respect for producing football players. So, um, you know, so you have to have that extra edge and that's what kind of separates us when we get the opportunity is, you know, from guys like the Andy Isabella's, the Victor Cruz's, I mean, the Marcel ships, you know, that were, that he was at Arizona as well. You have that mentality is, hey, once I get this opportunity, I'm going to show you what, you know, what I can do. And and, and that's really where, where that comes from. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And I think, you know, you, you find your way onto the roster. This is something I've talked about with quite a few guys who have made it just through pure hard work, determination and focus. They find themselves in a situation where they're entering this team. They're not the most covered by the media. They're not the most touted. There's a lot of risk on them because, you know, one bad move, they're cut, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure there. Um, I know that the process of training camp can be almost as political and almost as uh, personality-based as it is skill-based. How the heck do you come out of college undrafted, work your way into the roster, how do you navigate that scene within the team? How do you learn the culture and what got you into your role there on special teams? Yeah, well, to, you know, that's a great question. You know, one thing that I've always learned and it goes back to being the youngest in my family is I'm very, I'm able to be attentive to what's successful and what isn't very quickly. So I can adapt to seeing other people's success patterns and other people's failures. And so that's something that I used the second I stepped into that locker room. I looked at the veterans that, you know, were on their last year of their, their contracts that might not get re-signed. Re and I looked at their attitude and what they were doing. 
And then I looked at the other veterans, like the Jonathan Vilmas and, um, you know, the, the, the guys that, you know, the, the Lavernius Coles, the guys, the Chad Penningtons, the guys that have been in the league and were very productive. And I looked at their attitude and I started to imitate the things that they were doing, whether it was coming in at, at 5.30, 6am, getting your body worked on, stretching, working out, and then, you know, getting ready for practice early or um, started to take on those habits and what you see is those habits produce, um, they, they, they work, you know, to, you know, and when you see a guy that's a veteran that's been in the league seven years and he's coming into the building a half an hour before, you know, practice and meeting starts, you know, wiping the stuff out of his eyes and, you know, well, his longevity in the league, just, it, it's not going to work out regardless how talented you are. Once your talent runs out, they start paying attention to all the times that you were late and, and that you weren't a team guy. It's those guys that you see that do the things the right way all the time. When their talent level starts dimi diminishing, they start finding different roles for them on the field to be productive. And that's just how the league works. It's very relationship-based and it's very, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, relationship-based and, and it's production-based. And so one thing that I did when, when I, when I came into the league was I looked for, um, our special teams coach and Mike Westoff and the, you know, the general manager, Mike Tannenbaum said to me, he said, Hey, you better know where Mike uh, Westoff does his dry cleaning at. That's how close you need to be to him. Cause that's the only way, you're gonna make you know? And, and so I, I literally, I was in his office. I said, you know, what positions do I need to learn? You know, you know, what do I need to do? And he, he would just go up there and teach me and just say, Hey, da, 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 da. He'd write it on the board one time. I, I would get it. And the second he showed me it, I would get it. And then so when I had the ability to be versatile on special teams or you could put me at multiple positions, well, then that just increased my value because now you don't need this seventh year, you know, second string linebacker that plays special teams and then plays on third down when Hedibo can play three different positions on special teams and he can play the same position on third down and it costs half the price. And so that's how I kind of, you know, learn the business side of the game very quickly and how, you know, teams are trying to budget. And, you know, they said they, the saying that, you know, they always had in the NFL is the more that you can do, the more that you can do, the better that, you know, you, the more you'll be around. And so I was, you know, I was that, you know, I was that immigrant worker with seven jobs, you know, I made it work. That's, that's just amazing, man. Your, your, your discipline and hard work has always been one of the things that's always stood out to me. It's like, you never miss a day. You know, you don't miss a workout. You don't miss a meeting. You don't, you're not late to stuff. And those little habits translate to success, right? Those small things. And also knowing what you need to do. And you've always known what you need to do to get the job that you want to get. And that's always been admirable. Now, now talking about the serendipitous part of that in terms of the results, I think you have one of the most blessed NFL careers of any of my friends, right? Mm -hmm. Every year when you got to the Jets, you're playing in AFC championship games. Then you go to the Patriots and you're in the Super Bowl. Then you go from the Patriots to the Ravens, you're in the Super Bowl. Take us into how that finding success, because if you were playing for an 0-16 team, I don't think your confidence would be the same, right? Yeah. Take us into how playing for teams that were really good also helped you work harder and and want to strive further 
Yeah. So, you know, one thing that, you know, that I, that I always, that I noticed later, like, you know, kind of looking back at the lens of my career was there was a game um, when I was on the Jets and we were playing the New England Patriots. It was, it was a, a divisional playoff game. And I set the tone of the game. Literally, I think we beat the Jet, we beat the Patriots like 43 to 10, like just crushed them. But I set the tone of the game on a kickoff when I ran down the field and I literally, it was a kickoff return and I, uh, a guy was running down the field and I literally cleaned his clock right on the Patriots sidelines. I mean, li- like hit this guy so hard, like his body froze up and he was out for the rest of the game, concussion protocol, all of that. And I remember getting up when I was screaming at the Patriots sidelines and Bill Belichick with no look on his face, no smile, no nothing, no smirk, stone cold face, just looked at me and then made a note on his piece of paper. Right. And I don't know what what he was writing. Right. Then, you know, I go through my time, you know, with the Jets and we just we we had a great team. We had Rex Ryan as a coach who let us, you know, truly be a player's you know, run team, and it was led by the veterans. And we had, you know, the Bart Scotts, the Darrell Revises. I mean, the 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 Braylon Edwards, Antonio Holmes, Mark. I mean, we had a Ladanian Tomlinson. We had a really great football team. I think we, we even had Jason Taylor on our team. So a lot of you know veteran Hall of Fame players, and we just won a lot of games. I mean, we cl- came up short against Pittsburgh and and the AFC Championship, and we you know we came up short against. Um, the year before against the Colts and Peyton Manning in the AFC championship. So we just really played a lot of great teams, um, you know, during that time. And then during that transition, I remember we had the lockout after that year, you know, the first official lockout and I was a free agent and the jets didn't sign me back. They're just like, we're you know looking to go in another direction. And I thought, you know, I was like, man, and we're in a lockout. It's like, this is, you know, worst case scenario. I don't even know one, if we're going to have football next year, if I'm going to play again. And then once the lockout was kind of resolved, I think it was the last week of training camp, the Patriots gave me a call and said, Hey, we want to bring you in. And it was from that time when I was, you know, talking with Belichick, he was like, Hey, you know, I know you to be a physical player and that's the type of player that we want you to be here. And so you build a reputation for yourself around the league. Oftentimes you hear, Oh, what you put on tape is who you are, but you know, that's, that's what coaches and you know teams know you as. And so I went to the Patriots, ended up starting 12 games there. Um, you know, I remember that was a year was crazy because you had so many injuries in the secondary and yeah, it was nuts. yeah, the Patriots just, they were like, Hey, you're a special teams guy. That's all we want you to do is play special teams. And we had safety after safety dropping. And I'm just like, man, give me a chance to play. And, you know, finally, I think we even had Julian Edelman playing Nickelback that year. I mean, (laughs) just depleted in the secondary. And so finally they gave me a chance and, you know, I performed at a high level and ended up starting in the Super Bowl against the Giants, which was just, you know, a surreal, you know, feeling, atmosphere, you know, everything. It was, you know, cult. It was kind of one of those things where it's like everything that you worked for your entire life led to that moment. And then just being able to embrace it and be like, wow, this is, you know, this is, you know, insane. And then um, losing that game and even losing that game and giving up a touchdown, I felt, um, you know, I was, I was, if there was a feeling of like, man, depression or whatever it was, I felt it after that game. And I didn't want to watch football. I didn't want anything to do with it. And, you know, free agency came around and the, the Patriots said, hey, we want to re-sign you. For another year and i was like okay well let's 
Well, let's we have Tom Brady, we have the same team. Let's get back to the Super Bowl. And um, during that training camp, I hurt my foot. And, you know, they they released me with, I think, a week left of training camp. They said, hey, we're going to go in a different direction, you know, due to your injury and so forth. And and by then I was healed. I was ready to go. I was, you know, they just wanted to go in a different direction. So I said, all right. And, you know, Bill hit me with one of these. He said, hey, you know, we'll, we'll look, you know, maybe in a week or two we'll bring you back. And I was just like, like, no, like, you know, I'm going to be playing <laughs> somebody else, like, you know, and. Um, but that was kind of their their mindset. And literally before, I think before I even got to the locker room, I had my agent was calling me and was like, hey, we got three teams that, that want to sign you right now. And I, it was uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, Baltimore Ravens, and um, the, the Arizona Cardinals, you know, all wanted to sign me, um, you know, right then and there. And I said to my agent, I said, I already know where I want to go. I want to go to Baltimore. So just get, get us the most money as possible and, and I'll be there. And so I literally drove back to my apartment, packed up my suitcase and I was already heading to the airport to get on a flight to the Baltimore Ravens the same day that I was cut from, from the Patriots. And so um, it just, it just worked out that way. That's an amazing story. And I wanted to just take a moment here um, before we move on further to talk because you're a Massachusetts kid, right? Yeah. What it meant to you to play for the hometown team, to play for Bill Belichick, to play with Tom Brady, and what's so special about the Patriots culture? And then, Partha, you can get to what we were, where you were. <laughs> <at>. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, um, playing for the hometown team, I mean, you think about it, playing at UMass and then playing for the Patriots, it was like, um, you know, that surreal feeling that, you know, euphoria. I remember the first. NFL game I ever went to was my junior year in high school. My girlfriend at the time, you know, got me tickets to the Patriots Miami Dolphins game and seeing Jason Taylor and Tom Brady warm up. And, you know, that was back in the old Gillette with the, like the metal bleachers. And, you know, I didn't even know it was like a surprise. So I had no idea where we were going and I didn't dress. Like I just had like a light jacket on and here I am. I had to like buy it, you know, a, a, a bigger jacket for the game and so forth, but just, having that experience growing up in Massachusetts and knowing like, if you ever got a ticket to the Patriots game, like it was gold, you know? Um, and then being able to be on that field and a part of the organization and, you know, Robert Kraft, who's a first class owner. Um, there was, uh, they did stuff for, you know, fam, uh, the families after every game, it was like a five-star gourmet meal after every single game. Like they, the tunnel that the players had c come out of, they just, turned it into like a buffet style and had seating. And it was like a uh, top chef America. Like you could get anything you wanted um, after the game. And it was just the way he took care of the players and, and the families um, was, was a first class organization. So I, I loved it. And, you know, playing for Belichick, I mean, he was the type of guy, I mean, the stories are true. You would come into meetings and you'd be like, okay. Um, so we're playing the Kansas city chiefs this week. Um, Ahead of Bo, what's their tight end's name? How many years is he in college? What's how many yards does he average per catch? Is he a blocking tight end, passing tight end? Like all this information that he expected us to know, so we knew our opponents. So I mean, that's kind of the culture um, and the expectation and discipline that you have to have to play there. So two questions on that. 
First of all, does anybody else culturally hold a candle to that? Yes, culturally, the Baltimore Ravens are right there, um, you know, with 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 the New England Patriots, and um, you know, we we they I have some cool stories about that, but then, um, you know, other than that, there's there's no other. Everyone else is not even close, and even with the Patriots struggling right now with Cam Newton, they're still a better coach team than. 90% of the NFL, just the way they do things. That's awesome. And then um, I know you're on the other side of the ball, but um, Tom Brady, I know there's so much kind of aura around him in general. Uh, what is the culture like around him in that locker room? I know he's down Tampa now, but that that was a long stretch of superstardom for him. Yeah, no, Tom in that locker room is truly – and. You know, you could say it or not, but just another guy, which is the weirdest thing ever, because, you know, uh, Belichick would be quick to jump on him no different than he would any other player. I think in my time there, the only player that really didn't get, you know, too much junk was was Rob Gronkowski, you know, and he that's because he would just it would just he wouldn't take it serious. He's like, yeah, whatever, man, you know, and go out and <laughs> catch five touchdowns, you know, so um, but. In terms of you know the 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 pressure, everyone felt the pressure in that building. You step in that building, everyone's walking on eggshells. And even for Tom Brady, it wasn't like you're going to bench the guy, but he was chasing greatness every snap that he took, and that was his motivation. And so Bill knew those are the buttons to push to get him to play at a higher level, you know. And so it, th that was really the the mentality for everybody in that building. It's fascinating. So jumping into the transition, what? Was it the culture that drew you to uh, Baltimore? What what made you decide on that day? That's where I want to go. Um, I just playing with playing with you know great players. I mean, I used to often you know in college we had this thing every Thursday. Um, our secondary, you know, our DB coach at the time would get us pizzas and we'd stay after practice and just watch film. And the two films that we'd always watch would be the Steelers defense and the Ravens defense, and just see how they you know, roamed around the field, how they played with an attitude, how they disguised their blitzes. Um, and so then having that opportunity and to learn from Ed Reed and and Ray Lewis and Haloti Nada, Terrell Suggs, I, I, I was like, that's where I know my career can excel. And that's a team that I want to play for. And um, going into that culture, uh, truly it was, it was like leaving private school and going, you know, to the school in the inner city that had money and facilities, but it was still an inner city school, you know? Um, and so that's what it was like uh, playing for the Baltimore Ravens. And I mean, not to mention the, the owner, Steve Bashotti and uh, you know, just the way he took care of players, they had first class, first, you know, class technology. So they had stuff in terms of getting, you know, recovery to your body that, you know, no one's ever even seen before. Um, but then on the other side, you got guys like Terrell Suggs with, um, you know, with, you know, go-karts and scooters driving them out to practice, you know, every day in the practice field. So, you know, it was like the best of both worlds. Like you, you had fun, um, but it was still a serious environment as well. Yeah. And tell, tell us about that because it's like the Baltimore organization, the Patriots organization, I would add one more, the Steelers who you mentioned, they do things differently than everyone else from top to bottom. You know, and Ozzie Newsom is, is obviously a bit a huge part of that. But but tell us about how 
the players all buy into it culturally too, because you do have guys oftentimes who come in as rookies making $10 million a year. And then you have guys making 300,000. It seems like the difference between the Patriots Steelers and the Ravens is the togetherness of all those players, regardless of what level or what level of stardom they were at. That's what I've noticed. But tell us what specifically about Baltimore, those three teams, other teams could even mimic and could do to maybe get better. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a culture of, you know, unity, as you, you mentioned, um, you know, one of the big things that the Ravens do uh, every Monday is they give out game balls. And so it doesn't matter if you're a special teams guy, if you're, you know, the top, you know, paid guy on the team, you know, we'll watch that film as a team and they'll highlight those that played like a Raven throughout that game. And so you have an opportunity to make um, a name for yourself with your teammates. And a part of that is, is the respect aspect, right? And so they know that respect is given based on your performance. And so um, players would watch, you know, the tape and say, man, this guy, you know, they say, you know, if, if you're not running to the ball, you'll stick out like a sore thumb. So off the top, if you're not running to the ball, they already know that you can't play like a Raven. And then they want to see who's the most physical guy. And so they're, they're, we're making not, knots for that. And, you know, in Baltimore, there was a thing like, you know, we had to have seven quarterback knockdowns, you know, physical plays left and right. And so that was just the culture that was ingrained in all the players. And so the more you did that, the more your players respected you and it brought us closer together. Um, and we always play with that chip on the shoulder that everyone's coming for our, our, our backs, you know, every year, you know, even when we weren't even that good. I mean, the year we won the Super Bowl, we were nine and seven and snuck into the playoffs, but we still had that mentality of, Hey, we're the Baltimore Ravens and people like they're mad that we're in the playoffs. Like they're mad that the NFL did not want us to be in the playoffs. And that was our mentality. They're mad that we are here. So let's make them pay for it, you know? And so it's, you know, that's really the mentality that's always been, you know, play like a Raven. I love that, man. That, I mean, via, I think I'll let you do the honors of this segue, but I think there's a big question about that time period that we got to ask. Yeah. You, uh, I actually think we had one of the big James created one of the best experiences of my life through his play, uh, in Baltimore when you got to go down to New Orleans and, and play in the Super Bowl again, which uh, you invited me to come to, and we had an incredible, incredible time. And then most importantly, you won. Yeah. Take, take us into going from losing the year before to switching teams to now winning with the team you chose to go to. Yeah, I think, you know, the first year that we, you know, when I was with the Patriots and we went to the Super Bowl, I think I had some regrets with how I prepared going into the week. Like, you know, you know, everything was so uptight with New England. It was like, you know, we were back at the Super Bowl. We had a player curfew every single night. You couldn't really enjoy any of the festivities. They tried to treat it as much like it was just another game. And playing the Super Bowl is not another game. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so when I came to the Ravens, I mean, we had, I think we got there Sunday night and we didn't have a curfew until Friday night, the week, the week of the game. And so we got to enjoy the festivities. Guys had stories to tell. We got to 
bond closer as, you know, as a team and, you know, meet other, you know, family members and so forth. We really enjoyed the entire experience, um, you know, of the NFL, the, the NFL put on for the Super Bowl, which allowed us to play more relaxed going into the game. And so, you know, with that being said, going into that matchup, you know, we knew it was going to be a dogfight. You know, Colin Kaepernick and 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 uh, and the 49ers, they were another physical football team. And, you know, you know, uh, John Hardball and Jim Hardball and they they grew up in, you know, the same you know, how's the dad, his dad would, you know, tell us stories about how competitive they were growing up. So the teams were built very similar with similar attitudes and how to approach games and so forth. And so we knew it was going to be a dogfight, um, but we came out swinging and, you know, for us to go up, you know, uh, you know, like we did, you know, by, you know, three scores and, you know, then Beyonce sucked the light, you know, out of the yeah, building, that was crazy. <laughs> you know, Tell us about that, like how that changed the momentum of the game when when the power went out. Exactly. Something we've never experienced before, you know, in, in modern, you know, sports where, you know, the power just goes out in, in, in a facility uh, of that magnitude. But um, for us as players, it was, you know, we just got to stay loose and, you know, continue to communicate and go over the play, game plan and the adjustments. But when they went when they told us it was going to be 20 minutes, then 20 minutes went to 40 minutes. And the next thing you know, it's an hour and a half before the power's back on. You know, it took a lot for even the fans to get back into the game. So, um, you know, it was just something that we had to deal with during the adversity. But, you know, we finished that fourth quarter strong. And um, Ed Reed had, you know, a key interception there, you know, with, you know, Colin Kaepernick. And, um, you know, Corey Graham forced a fumble with the running back when, um, you know, they were actually going into, you know, possibly score a touchdown there. And so we just made some key plays when we had to. And that was kind of the story of us all season long against uh, the, the Denver Broncos in Denver. Uh, you know, we had a pick six on defense and, uh, you know, a key interception, you know, towards the end of the game as well. And so just constantly making those plays with our backs against the wall was really the difference. And then experiencing you know, that feeling of the confetti coming down, the, the 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 fans going crazy. And, you know, it was kind of that like pause for a second, like, wait, did, did we win? Like, did this really just happen? And then, you know, everyone celebrates together and being able to send, um, you know, Ray Lewis off, you know, riding into the sunset with the Super Bowl championship was what was, was was amazing. And from you for you personally, did it feel like like a cap, like I've reached the mountaintop moment? Did you feel that? Yeah. Most certainly. Most certainly. I, I think, you know, going from the year before um, and having, you know, the Super Bowl. And one thing that, you know, I, I'd be remiss to not to mention, you know, I, you know, it's big. My faith is, you know, big part of my family and and, and just how I was how I was raised and I am raising my kids is um, dur before every season. I would always leave and I would, you know, go to my church and my pastor would pray for me and, you know, that I would just be, you know, injury free going into the, you know, the, the, into the year. And that year was different because he was praying for me and he said, you know, and you're going to win a Super Bowl. And when he prayed and I was just like, no, I, well, I, I was just like, whatever, I just lost a Super Bowl. Like, you know, yeah, right. Like what's the chances, you know, even Tom Brady can't even go back to back Super Bowls. Like how, you know, and I was with the Patriots on the Patriots at that time of, you know, that prayer. And then for everything to happen full circle where, 
you know, I got released from the Patriots and then went to the Ravens and then, in fact, won a Super Bowl. Um, it made the experience, you know, that much more, you know, surreal for me. I have a logistical question about all of these trades and relocations that players go through. And I've always wondered this. How do you like handle your living situation going from city to city? Like, when do you commit to move your stuff? Like, what is it? Is that like just a massive distraction? Because for me, like, if I have to move, dude, if I have laundry to do, I'm stressed out about it while I'm working. You know what I mean? Like, but, you know, believe it or not, um, you know, these teams, I mean, they're billion dollar organizations. So they, they're logistical team. Um, in terms of getting you situated. I mean, when I went from New England to uh, Baltimore, I had a realtor waiting for me. I had the moving company already lined up. The people to ship my cars are already lined up. And it was literally a like a matter of like a push of a few buttons and everything was in motion without me even being there. That's and so, nice. You know, That's it kind of, nice. it allows you just to focus on you know, the transition and, you know, getting adapted to the new city, knowing that, you know, all the other stuff is is kind of taken care of. You know, it's funny. You're talking about winning the Super Bowl. And meanwhile, I'm thinking about what, how did he move all this stuff from Boston to Baltimore? Hey, the questions that come on come to your mind have to be asked, man. Yeah. It's, it's important to do so. So you win the Super Bowl, you get to the mountaintop, and then, you sign a big free agent deal with the lions um, and you go from these organizations, the Ravens. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take too much time to down the lions organization because they did pay you. They yeah. took care of you that, while you were there and were pretty good when you were there, yeah. but just generally wanted to highlight the difference, like toward the tail end of your career, going from those two organizations to transitioning to organizations where the culture wasn't necessarily the same. And what you would say the difference between a winning culture and a less winning culture, I won't say losing, a less winning culture. Is. Yeah, no, it's, it's you know, what, what, what was kind of cool about the transition of my career was I went from at the Jets, you know, kind of watching, then, you know, with the Baltimore Ravens and Patriots doing, and then with the Lions, I went to kind of teaching and, you know, toward the tail end of my career. And so some of the, you know, things that I've, you know, learn from, you know, the greats in this league, passing it on to the Darius Slays and the Quandre Diggs and, you know, the guys that are playing at a high level now in the NFL, you know, we're all together in, in Detroit together. And um, that was one of the reasons why they, they brought me in and, 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 and paid me was because they wanted me to bring that culture of winning to a team that's never experienced that before. Um, and Jim Caldwell, I mean, he did a phenomenal job till this day. He still is the most winningest coach for the, you know, the, the Detroit Lions for his time period there. And so um, we were able to, in our first year, flip that thing around completely, you know, and, and make it to the playoffs, you know, where we, you know, got gypped by, you know, fan, non-pass interference call on, against the Cowboys, you know, should have been called, but um Nonetheless, but being able to go from never or last time making it to the playoffs is maybe 2001, I think, to finally ending that drought, um, having the number two defense in the NFL. Um, I think throughout our secondary, I think we had 11 consecutive games with a member in our secondary getting an interception, which you know was you know NFL record with 
myself, Glover Quinn, and Rasheen Mathis. So being able to elevate the guys around me to play at a higher level um, and then teach a new culture to, you know, to a team. And then the following year we were plagued by injuries and, um, you know, they, they, they kind of, you know, we went, you know, seven and seven or, you know, something like that. And then they kind of snipped Caldwell after that, which I think if they gave him another opportunity, they would probably still be a great football team right now. But, um, you know, that's another show. But, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, I think for, for them as an organization, um, when you make a commitment to, uh, you know, to, to taking on the DNA of organizations that are ahead of you in terms of success, and the major part of that is a cultural change. Well, once you make that commitment, you have to stick to it and see it through. And I think they pulled the trigger too quickly. And now you're seeing that the, the lines have regressed back to the lines of old due to, you know, not talent level, but, but culture. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's super well said, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So from the lines, you go to the bills, um, what was different in that move? Did there, I mean, really start of the year. Great. They've been a really solid team in, in recent years. Um, what happened? And, uh, Rex Ryan was there when you were there too. And you had, you had played with them earlier in, in your years at the jets. Um, how did that relationship change compared to how you played when you were younger? What was, what was this experience like for you after your time at the Lions? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I love Rex. Rex has always been, um, you know, one of my favorite coaches to play for. And he, it was kind of a similar thing as Detroit when I was, you know, free agent. Um, they need, they had major leadership issues there in Buffalo. And he was like, hey, we have a chance to make it to the playoffs. Um, I need to, you know, I want to bring you in and just help with our culture. Um, but not realizing this until when I got up there, I just don't even think that culture <laughs> could have been helped due to the guys um, that he had. And, you know, often when you see a new coach, he comes in and he brings in his guys. Well, a lot of the players that Rex had, Ian, he inherited from, you know, the previous regime. And I mean, you're talking about guys, you know, you know, coming into meetings and reeking like marijuana, just like no, no, no mindset and focus to say, this is going to take all of my everything that I have for us to be successful, but guys really want to do it like a part-time job. And it was, it, you know, that that's what we produced on the field. Um, you know, we had some, you know, great, you know, great players, but you know, it's one thing to have great players and then, you know, to have a great team and it takes a little bit more, you know, that I, that I learned over the years and they just weren't ready for that, that commitment. Now you see, you know, with the Buffalo bills, now they have new players, new faces, a new culture, and that team is a new organization. I think they're they're the top team in the AFC East, which has been, you know, for the New England Patriots for the last twenty years. And so you look at the significance of the changes that they made, um, you know, during during you know this this new the new regime. But I say that to say, you know, my time in Buffalo. I mean, I I, I was there for all of you know four or five weeks. Yeah, and you know, broke my leg and you know, in a freak accident tackling Le'Veon Bell. Um, and the crazy thing about this was I, I loved competing so much that, you know, I, I hurt my leg during the game and it was so cold. Mind you, it was a snowy, cold game. And I just thought, I was like, man, maybe I just sprained my ankle. 
and I st- I kept I stayed in the game. I played wow. the entire second half with a quote unquote sprained ankle, and then it wasn't until it wasn't until after the game I took the tape off my ankle, and my foot was just like throbbing, and I was like, wait, this isn't right. When they got X-rays and they're like, "Man, you broke your you broke your tibia." Um, Whoa! Yeah, and I was just praying the whole playing the whole game with a with a broken tibia. So, um, you know, it was kind of. And then afterwards, Rex is like, "Are you kidding me? Like, you guys are complaining about you know these you know hand injuries or whatever it may be, and this guy's playing a whole second half of football with a broken leg." Um, great, teaching, great teaching moment for him. Yeah, great teaching moment. But you know, that's just kind of. One, I knew I was at the tail end of my career. Two, it was just, you know, that's kind of how I've always been was, you know, whatever it took to play, I was willing to do that. And take take us into that, right? Your decision after that injury, because looking at you now, you still are in playing shape. Like you work out like, like you're still in the league and you probably could have played a couple more years and gone on to another team. How did you go through that decision to say, hey, this this is it for me? And I'm ready to move on to other things in life. Yeah, well, I mean, often it's it, failure to prepare is preparing to fail, and that's how I've always been throughout my life. That's how I've always, um, you know, kind of positioned myself. And so, you know, when I was leaving uh, the Baltimore Ravens, I, I started to think about, you know, what is life after football because I knew it was coming, you know, closer and closer. Even though I signed a multi-year deal with the Detroit Lions, I knew there was some point it was going to come to an end. And I thought it would probably be after my Lions uh, days. And so I started to look at, you know, other avenues of things that I was passionate about. And my financial advisor, um, you know, still with me to this day, um, he was telling me from my time with the Jets, I mean, he owns 10 childcare centers around New York, um, as well as, you know, a financial advisor. And so um, he was like, you know, this is a, you know, it's a good business model and it's, you know, very profitable and, you know, you should look into it. And I, and I was, you know, wet behind the ears. I wasn't, I was more concerned about other things. And then once I got to tell into my year, career, I was like, let's look at this. Let's see what we could do. And um, my mom has her PhD in early childhood education. And uh, with over 35 years of experience, so it started to make sense. And, um, and so we looked into, you know, the, the Kitty Academy franchise and I started before I signed with the Buffalo Bills, I was already two years into the process of, you know, doing research and um, finding the land and starting the construction process on our first location. And so when I signed with the Buffalo Bills, I already knew that, hey, this doesn't work out. You know, I already have, you know, what I'm walking away to, you know, kind of kind of developed. And so that made the transition easy. I think for a lot of guys, what gets them stuck is that they don't have something that to transition to. They don't have something to apply that same discipline, work ethic. They don't have something set up. And you can have a lot of money in the bank and all of that is great. But having money in the bank doesn't fill the void of competing and working and building success as it does, you know, in the midst of doing it. And that's for any line of work. I think there's um, a sense of gratification and a joy that comes comes to you when you're putting in the work and you're seeing the benefits of that work manifest in front of you rather than just saying, well, I got all the benefits, but I never put in the work. I mean, there's something, 
you know, fraudulent to that. And I think that that's kind of, you know, something that a lot of players deal with is that like, oh man, I got all this money in the bank, but now what, now what do I do? And, you know, and, and, and it's not a matter of, oh, okay, I can just retire. Well, if that was the case, it wouldn't be billionaires because billionaires would get a lot of money and say, hey, I'm just going to retire, but they're still putting in work and still finding new ways to generate, um, you know, revenues and incomes. And so, you know, that's kind of the mindset that, you know, guys need to have. And that's, 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 that's what I was able to do. I know that now the NFL um, spearheaded by a friend, Dior uh, Ginyard, um, they have this program called athlete ant that's helping transition guys off the field um, to find some of these passions that they can apply that work ethic to uh, back when you were transitioning out, was there this kind of support to help, athletes start to find their way off the field in terms of different business endeavors. And when you started to go down that lane, where did you find your mentors? Where did you learn what you needed to learn to be able to handle, you know, PNLs, construction costs, learning about land, all of that? Yeah. So that, that's, that's a great question. So um, what I had available to me was, you know, the NFL continuing education program where, you know, you can go and get your MBA from, um, Har- you know, Harvard or, you know, University of Miami. There's a lot of um, opportunities to um, learn from top CEOs from Sony and so forth. That was available to me. But um, I looked at that and said, OK, you know, what can I really benefit from that? I mean, if I, if I were to do that, what would result would me being an employee to somebody else, you know, possibly learning information, rubbing with the right shoulders and possibly getting a job, whether it's at ESPN or, you know, NFL network or NBC or some, something along those lines, maybe that would come from it. And it would give me, you know, good, you know, um, you know, uh, income and so forth, but it wouldn't give me the freedom that I, that I would want. And so um, for me, I just looked at the opportunity of, owning my own business and what that really looked like, a franchise. Okay, so, well, having a franchise, well, they, they there's a lot of resources that come with that. And so that was what was um, really more, um, you know, um, uh, uh, enticing for me. And then what I did was when I found, like I researched some of the top childcare, um, you know, companies in the country from Primrose, Goddard, Kids Are Kids, you know, um, all of them. And really what I learned was, that they're similar, but the the big difference is the education model and what they're producing educational wise. That's what parents are preparing for. And when I landed on Kitty Academy, I went and I found the person who's doing the the best work in and with the most full the, with the the most uh, schools that were at full capacity in the country. And come to find out they were right here in my backyard in Houston. And so I literally, you know, met, you know, with this guy and his, his name was Cor- uh, uh, his name was Corey Bullock and um, sat down, met with him for months on end. And I was like, teach me everything, you know, teach me what's successful, what parents want to hear, like teach me everything that you've learned over the years, because learning it firsthand from him, corporate isn't going to tell me that what corporate's going to tell me is, Hey, When's my 7% coming and so forth? That's what they care about, you know? And so um, I learned, you know, from, you know, him that was hands-on doing it. And um, he taught me everything that I know. And, you know, from learning from him, I think with our first location, 
uh, when we opened our doors, we had 115 kids enrolled, which corporate was blown away because, you know, if you have 20 kids enrolled, that's a great start. And, you know, when you talk about P&Ls and, uh, and performas, and I literally, the same way that I learned a new NFL playbook was the same way that I taught myself, you know, you know, P&Ls, QuickBooks, um, you know, AR reports, everything. I literally was like, you know, from point blank, teach me everything you know. And then I just learned and learned and learned until I, until I mastered it. And so, um, you know, I never went to school, never got my MBA, never went to school for business, never did any of that stuff. And yet I'm a successful businessman, which tells you that if you're willing to apply yourself to anything, just like I did with the NFL, it's possible for you to have success in it, but it's, it's an all in approach. You know? I love that. I just want to underscore that sentiment. Um, I'm a college dropout myself. I went right into business once I found my lane and figured out where I fit into the ecosystem. Anybody can learn business skills. These things are not difficult. They just require focused, measured work. And in the same way, you set your goals your whole life, make them bite size and make sure you're accomplishing them frequently so that you feel that sense of accomplishment. But it's so much more empowering to build something. And for all of our listeners, it's not impossible, especially in this country and especially with the resources available at our fingertips on our phones or on the internet, you can do more or less whatever you want on the business side of things. And it, it all it takes is work. And that's a really beautiful thing about the infrastructure we have here. Yeah. And, and that's what I agree. And, you know, often what, you know, is, is, you know, especially, you know, people of color, they get fearful on the fact of, well, one, I don't know, you know, if my idea will work. And then two, I don't have the money to start my idea. You know, the, the one thing that I've learned is you'd be surprised, you know, if you're really, um, you know, strategic about um, your, your, your plan and your model, how you can get funding. I mean, there's funding out there. If you have a great idea, people will invest money in it um, if they're going to see a return and it's built out correctly. Because uh, believe it or not, a lot of people have expandable incomes that they can say, I can invest this much. And if you have the right people around you, that that's, that's a possibility. And so I think that's, you know, often people say that and I'm like, that's a cop out for you not wanting to put in the work because if you can show someone flat out, this is your return and this is how you'll make your money back from my business model in this time period. Um, and it's, and it's somewhat foolproof, um, you know, bearing things outside your control. Yeah. People will, 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 will jump in on that opportunity. Um, and then also, there's nothing that's going to substitute putting in the work. You got to grind. It's it, you got to grind. I mean, I think, you know, even now, I mean, I think we're on, you know, location number four and, you know, we've only been doing this for four years now, you know, and we have, you know, four locations over, you know, a thousand, you know, uh, families and, and children and, you know, over, you know, 200 and something employees, but it's something that it just takes work. And, you, you continue to have to grind. And I think, you know, for, for our goals, it's like, I'll look up, you know, five years from now when I feel like taking a break, but that's, that's just my mindset. I rather work now, you know, in, in, you know, in commonplace work like a slave to eat like a King, you know, later on. And so, you know, that, that's really the, the, the mindset. Yeah. It's, that, this is great. I love hearing both of you guys talk about this and, and, and go back and forth. And, We've talked a lot about the NFL. We've talked a lot about your business. 
But I think another thing that stands out to you about you to me is your balance, your, your work-life balance, and your, also your approach to, to family and faith, taking that same approach to being a great dad, being a great, a great husband, and making sure you're, fa- you're successful as a, as a father and as a husband and in your faith as you are in your, your business ventures and, and, and things that make you money. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's so important. Um, you know, I'm big on legacy because my dad left, you know, legacy, you know, for me. I mean, um, and so even even with that, I think, you know, one of our schools, um, our schools, the acronym, you know, it's it's JAG. It's JAG legacy. And, you know, that's for, you know, Jeremiah, Ava and Grace. Those are my three kids, you know. And so knowing that, you know, I kind of used our business name after them. It's kind of like that's a whole, you know, geared towards me always staying grounded and knowing that what I'm doing is for them. Like, it's not about, you know, me having the best things in life or any of that. It's about positioning them for generational wealth, um, you know, as, as, as they grow up. And the other thing is um, when I'm there, I mean, I have, I have young kids. So I have, I have a two-year-old, a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and then we have one on the way. In, in December. And my whole approach is when I'm at home, turn it off. You know, the emails, they'll still be there in the morning. The, the, the to-do list, it'll still be there in the morning. But the age in which my kids are at, I'm not going to be able to get that time back later on. And so whenever, um, you know, I am, you know, off and away from work, it's, it, it's, it's the off switch. I'm not, I'm not really doing anything work related. Um, and, you know, and so I have a crazy schedule, you know, I'm up five thirty six in the morning and with ministry stuff, cause I'm an elder at my church, there is some late days, but there'll be other days where I'll just say, Hey, I'm taking this whole Friday off and I'm just going to spend it with the kids. And, you know, we'll find out, you know, some fun activities to do and stuff like that. So we can build those memories and, and they know, you know, they, they know who their dad is and so forth. I remember, you know, the other day, um, you know, I was quizzing my daughter about, you know, about bank lending, you know, and just asking her questions about, you know, having a good credit score and, you know, what do bank, what will banks lend you money for and, and so forth. And, you know, we're just, you know, talking about simple things like, you know, banks will lend you money for your house or banks will lend you money for a business and specific banks do different things and so forth. And so, um, you know, just quizzing her and talking to her about that. But I want her to learn what daddy does at work at a young age. So she doesn't just think, oh, my dad works. And then I see him when he gets home, when he gets home. But no, she needs to know even now at a young age and, and, and get some of those values. And believe it or not, more is caught than taught. So, um, you know, I'm excited about, you know, the the the, the footprints that, that they'll lay, you know, for others to walk in. You know, James, I think, one thing I really appreciate about you is your desire for excellence in every aspect of your life. Uh, it's something that I don't think a lot of people do because we have so much focus on professional success in our society, but you've done it on the football field. You've done it professionally. You do it spiritually and you do it on the family side as well. And your work, your business has meaning to you as well. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really nice to spend time with people that have, all of that balance to, to V's point, or um, I, I like the phrase work-life harmony better because it, it doesn't imply any sort of amount of yeah. each category, right? What is the best for you? 
Um, but it sounds like you've really taken the time to figure out what makes you happy, what makes you tick, and you've built your life around those lines. And I think so many people go the other way. They try to fit into society and then um, they end up losing a part of themselves. So kudos to you for taking that time to really build things out in your life where they really serve you and it allows you to be of great service to the world. Man, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And, you know, part of, you know, that comes from, you know, being in that NFL locker room where you have guys from so many different walks of life and you see, you know, kind of what works in different cultures, um, respectively. And then you also see guys that might, you know, grow up in the suburbs and they might try to act like they're someone from the inner city. And it's like, that's not you. Like, just be who, just be, everyone will accept you just for being who you are. And so when you, you can see those different dynamics over, you know, so many years, you just, you're just comfortable in your own skin and you say, Hey, what you see is what you get. And, you know, if you don't like it, that's tough, but, um, and, and you really, you know, find, like you said, just find your, find your own lane to, 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 to flow in. James, this has been great, man. This has been great. Better, better than I even expected. Um, let's, let's get you out of here on a couple fun things. We've had a, a lot to talk about and digest, but one thing we like to do is talk about inspiration, right? You clearly have people who have, who have inspired you. And we focus in on two areas here. I'll ask the first one. Partha can ask the, the second one. The first one is the top five musicians that have influenced you and why. Um, top five musicians. Um, I would say the first one would be Jay-Z um, and not so much, you know, maybe early on his music, it was his music that really, you know, connected with me because, you know, like many things, you can always remember where you were during certain songs. Um, but I think um, his ability to, to adapt, um, he adapts to um, every new season, it seems like, and he, continues to push the envelope to allow himself to stay relevant and stay, you know, on top. And so that mindset that, that he kind of takes on is something that, that, that I, that I like. So I'll, I'll put him at number one. Um, at number two, I'll have to say um, for hip hop artists, I'll say Nas um, because, you know, that's just, you know, growing up up North, that's, I mean, he, he, you know, he, he was everything. Um, um, with, with that, oh, um, number three. Wow. Um, it doesn't have to be all hip hop, by the way. Okay. In turn, yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm thinking too. Um, um, ah, you know, okay. Another one that, that I really like and, and you wouldn't expect it is Bears Hammond. So he's a, you know, um, J Jamaican reggae artist, um, and he has this, just this cool vibe to him. Um, and that's something that's, he's someone that we listen to a lot in our house on Saturdays, just, you know, kicking it vibing, um, because there's just something about his approach to music and life in terms of just real chill, relaxing and wanting, you know, that good vibe. Um, and then other than that, I'll say, um, in terms of um, gospel music, Travis Green. So he's going to be, you know, up there with me because his music, not only is it um, inspirational, but, um, you know, it, it, 
it resonates a lot about, you know, what God's done in my life and what I've able to see and experience that people thought would be naturally impossible. Um, but from his divine plan, it's able to manifest. Um, and so I would say him and then, wow. Um, and then last one would be, would be Fred Hammond, who's another gospel artist. Um, and, you know, he, he has some, you know, powerful praise music as well. And so, you know, those five artists, um, you know, truly that, that, that's, that's on the playlist. It's a great eclectic list. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I have Barris Hammond pulled up right now, and I'm about to listen after we yeah. after we yeah. get off this. Yeah. Um, the you, other question, I, I will. Yeah, the other question is the top five athletes that have inspired you, and why? Um, top five athletes. Um, wow, Brian Dawkins. Um, you know, he has. Weapon X. You know, his, his yeah, Weapon X. Um, you know, in college I used to have that on my eye black. I'd have Weapon X. Um, and you know, the alter ego of being, you know, Wolverine on the football field. And you know, I really embraced because our game was so similar in terms of how we played the game and just our approach. Um, and so I would say Brian Dawkins. You get to meet him? Oh, of course. Oh yeah, man. That, phenomenal phenomenal guy i mean he every time he signs um an autograph he signs it with his favorite favorite bible verse underneath which is you know first timothy uh one and seven it says god hasn't given us a spirit of fear but one of love power and a sound mind and so i always like i'm like you know that's you know that's that's amazing what better way to you know send a message um than that and so so i would say brian dawkins i would say ed reed um, hands down, you know, the, the, the best to ever do it. I would say Kobe Bryant, I would say Michael Jordan and, um, man, um, last but not least, it's, it's tough, but I would say Tom Brady. Nice. Nice. That's a, that's a great, yeah, it's a really good list. Yeah. Yeah. So those are, you know, all, they, you know, all have excelled and, and done it at a high level. Um, but, you know, all of them never, never paid attention to your accolades. You know, they like there's something to that when you're not impressed by the hard work that you do, but it's more of expected of yourself. You know, yeah. and I think, you know, we can all learn a lot from that in, in terms of how low or, or, or how high our expectations are of ourselves. You know, yeah, yeah, that's totally. a great way to look at it. Well, James, man, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Nah, man, I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, I wish you guys, you know, much success, man. Much success. Sky's the limit for you guys. So appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a pilot boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high-performance lifestyle brand that makes a Lasso Sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture wicking materials and built-in strike padding. So every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media.
Thanks for joining us today on the Pilot Boys podcast. We had a great conversation about college football with Zach Smith and a really amazing interview with James Ahedabo. If you enjoy this type of content and want to support, check out our Patreon. We would love to get an intern so V doesn't make me edit videos all weekend. And always remember, be you, you is fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot boys, we get on